Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Circle Strafe. I'm Garrett. And I'm Austin. Circle Strafe is a bi-weekly game club podcast playing and reviewing video games new and old. If you'd like to play along with us, participate in the discourse, or just have a chat, we'd encourage you to join our Discord server linked in the description. Since we are a new podcast, we'd be especially grateful for any feedback you may have, whether that be in the form of a rating, review, or Discord message. Austin, what game did we play for this episode? Potionomics. Which, the genre on this one, it's a, it's a doozy. Yeah, uh, the genre is about seven other genres together. A deck-building, dating sim, chemistry, capitalism, simulator, visual novel thing. I, that's, that is literally the most concise way you can uh, explain it. And this is uh, the most modern game uh, that we've reviewed so far. Uh, our little intro says we review games new and old, but we've been just reviewing old. So this game was chosen specifically because it was one of the more modern games in my library that uh, I wanted to really just talk about the various different gameplay systems, which is, as you heard in his air quotes concise way to say the genre, it it feels like a mess, but it's fun to talk about because in a way it kind of works together, like all the little parts. So I'm I'm interested to talk about that. Yeah, I think that's a good reason for choosing it. And there is definitely a lot of discussion to be had simply because of all of the things that it brings together into one game. Um, if if you were to walk into a room or turn on a stream and watch about 30 seconds of gameplay, what would it look like to you? Well, see, that's the interesting thing. Because all our previous games, you'd be able to get a pretty decent idea of the game from that 30 seconds. In this one, I feel like if you just turned on a stream for 30 seconds, you're going to get a different view of what this game is depending on what part of the game they're in. Because, for example, you you cut it on and they're making potions. You're like, oh, this is one of the, this is like a chemistry puzzle simulator thing. You open it up and they are, uh, you know, talking to NPCs. You might be like, oh, this is a dating sim. Yeah, you turn it on and they're selling potions. You're like, oh, this is, this is Slay the Spire. It's none of those things while also being all of those things. Yeah, it is one of those things that if you just turn on a stream for a very short amount of time, you are going to have your view changed on the game because it uh, the game genre changes with every scene just about. Now, there's only like, what would you say, like about five main ones? Something like that. Something like that. I guess it depends on what you, on cons- what you consider. It, yeah, there's, there's so. probably about a dozen different mechanics uh, overlaid by the time you make it to the end. Yeah, so it's hard to say what like the little streamer eye catch thing is because of how different every aspect of this game really is. But don't worry, we're going to go into some depth on these and, and break them down so it's more digestible. And hopefully by the time we reach the end of this podcast, you'll have a more holistic view of what this game is like. So just a few more details. It came out on October 17th, 2022. It's a PC release only, as far as I could tell. Uh, looks like it only came out on Steam. Am I right about that? Uh, from everything that I saw, yes, because I also I didn't see it on good old games, but you know I may have just missed it. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it's just a Steam release. Okay. Now, this was the first in its series, and it was kind of a breakout title for Voracious Games, right? From what I understand, yeah. So this is the first in the series, and it performed... Uh, rather well for a small studio, so I would not be surprised if 
unlike you know the previous games, like you know how much I talked about, I want a custom Robo sequel. I will not be surprised if this one gets one, gets a sequel. Hopefully, this isn't too much of a spoiler for my opinion. I know that they did make some money off of this based on the article that you shared with me. It said it had made over a million dollars, and how long was it? Uh, it was first two weeks, I think. First two weeks, yeah. So whatever you think about this game, I I think it will be really interesting to see what that bankroll causes them to allows them to create, you know, in the coming years. Yeah, because I'm not gonna spoil a lot of my opinion, but this definitely does feel just preemptively. It does feel like a game that, if it had a bigger budget, could have done more with its time. Yeah, I think so too. So how'd you play this game? I uh, played it on my desktop, Windows 10. Okay. I played it on my Steam Deck, which was a mistake. I think it took me three times longer to beat this game than you, just going by playtime. Um, yeah, um, which we'll get into exactly why that is, but I think this is going to be the first game on the podcast that we can really say that the Steam Deck is not the ideal way to play it. No, and the reason for that is almost... Everything that you do is done with the mouse. I mean, technically, mouse and keyboard, but I don't know if there were any shortcuts. I I did play the last, like, five days of the 50 days that are allotted, uh, you know, in-game days of playtime on my laptop, and that's that. it was an entirely different experience and a better experience that way, so... Unfortunately, I think my opinion may be slightly jaded because being able to move the mouse around and quickly click on all the things that you need is far superior to having to use that little trackpad and the right trigger to click on things. Yeah, I couldn't imagine because, see, you and I had completely different uh, experiences in terms of this because you were like, dude, this takes so long. It took me like two hours on a single day. And then I was, you know, breezing through it because the mouse, you know, I just, it became muscle memory. I didn't have to deal with that track because trackpads are always kind of eh. So do you remember how in Far Cry 2, there were all of these like features and stuff that you were not discovering until like a third of the way through the game? Do you know how long it took me to figure out that you could sort your ingredient inventory by potency of ingredient? Oh, no, dude. It wasn't until I played it on my laptop during the last week of gameplay. Oh, my God. That also is probably why <sighs> I moved so fast or so much faster because, see, I figured that out on like the second competition week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes it easier to do potions because that way you're not having to sort through a bunch of terrible things because uh we'll get into it in gameplay but it does have the type of progression that a lot of these games do where as you progress further into the game your starting ingredients for potions become less and less useful yeah so you were having to just go through all of those i was having to mouse over every ingredient and see what the potency was yeah so that was miserable um don't play this on steam deck unless i mean don't play it beginning on the Steam Deck. Just because of me and the way that my life is, I don't get an opportunity to get my laptop out. My, you know, I have a gaming laptop and play on it most of the time. So when I get a chance to play a game, Steam Deck it is almost all the time. If you have a Steam Deck, I mean, it does have cloud save compatibility, so that's not an issue. Definitely play some of this, at least the tutorial and the intro and stuff, on a computer and like grab a, a little bit of the game here and there on Steam Deck, but don't don't use Steam Deck as your main way to play this game. Yep, and that's 
probably the first and one of the only times, because I think we're going to be careful about not picking anything that heavily relies on the mouse. Um, but it's uh, it, it's not great on the Steam Deck from what I have heard from you know Garrett's messages. No, um, I, I will say it ran okay. There's uh, I used the 40 hertz mode with a 40 FPS lock. It did chug occasionally on certain scenes, but with this type of game, it doesn't really matter. It was tolerable and it ran well. It's just actual, the gameplay, having to use that trackpad to navigate menus was not nice. And that is, uh, you know, he says that you have to use the trackpad to navigate the menus, and I need to make it very well known that this game is menus. It is. It's menus, yeah. So on that note, you want to move into the graphics? Yeah, so let's go ahead and start with the art direction, I suppose. Okay. Um, why don't you take us away then? So, uh, my major note for the art style is very modern. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. A lot of the, like, I find a lot of the actual character designs very charming. Um, you know, like the carpenter is kind of a druid lady, and she's got like a living, uh, uh, like wooden arm. You know, kind of like she took it from a tree end or something. You have, you know, the peppy adventure girls. You have very charming designs, but the actual. Uh, makeup of it feels I I when I was messaging you about this I believe I described it as Pixar esque and I I do st- I do stand by that it's a little bit but I think I've found a better comparison it feels to me like you know when you're on YouTube or whatever social media you use and you see those uh advertisements that have like the really cartoony 3D models that's what a lot of it looks like yeah I called it Fortnite TikTok chic. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one. And what you said about it being very modern, yeah, my note says made for Zoomers by Zoomers. Yep, and that is, uh, you know, most of, like, the 3D models, but, like, it, their actual designs, nothing wrong with them, uh, for the most part, with, the, with a few exceptions, a few ones that raise uh, eyebrows. Uh, most of the characters have very stylized appearances. Uh, you know, they're all very... Uh, uh, I guess eye catching, which I think is the intention. Um, I mean, you have one girl who's literally just a moth. She's a moth. It took me so long to figure that out. I was like, why does she have two sets of arms? You know, four arms, two legs. She's a yeah. She's an insect girl. I get it. She's a Luna moth. Yeah, it's got a very strong identity. The art direction does. It's very cohesive. And when I say for zoomers, by zoomers. That's not meant to be like a derogatory statement or anything. That's meant to be descriptive. It very much seems informed by the sort of cartoony style that, I guess, Fortnite and modern games of that sort have. Yeah, and, you know, you can take that in a negative way, you can take it in a positive way. One of the positive ways I would say about it is, in a lot of the games that we've played, characters blend into the background, but every character here definitely, as you said, they have an identity. They, you know, everyone has a very unique appearance that you're not really going to confuse with anyone else. I don't know any character that looks like another character in this game. Another game I think is worth mentioning for comparison is Overwatch. I think it looks very Overwatch-esque in the way that the design language is, which you're talking about how every character is very distinctive from one another. The sort of, I know that's a hero shooter, and this is the farthest thing from a hero shooter, but if you think about the actual heroes themselves and their designs... 
I mean, you could see the characters in this game <laughs> having a crossover with Overwatch or something. 100%. And I think that's a good uh, comparison because hero shooters have to have strong character identity so that the ca- the gameplay style is identified from a simple look, you know? You see... Well, you know, we'll just keep the... Uh, the Overwatch comparison going. You see Reinhardt, that's a tank. You don't have to, you know, you don't really need much uh, thinking to know that's a tank. And most of the characters in this are the same way. Like, uh, we're going to save a detailed description of the characters for story because the story is the characters and the characters are the story. Um, But one of the adventurers... You know, you look at her and you know her personality. She is the peppy tomboy adventure girl. You look at the, you look at Saffron, the, what is she, the carpenter? Carpenter. And yep. you know she's a hippie chick. Yep, she's always sitting around. Uh, she's got a uh, wooden arm, and then, you know, she's always, like, smoking from a pipe. She's got a laid-back expression, like her posture and everything. She's a satyr, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She's got the, the cloven hoof feet or whatever with the reverse-jointed legs. I think looking at the character designs, it's impossible to ignore the fact that the character artists are talented they knew what they were doing. The designs and the style overall, it feels very cutesy, but I just feel like it tries too hard sometimes. That could just be my preference. I could see people being very charmed by this game, but personally, for me, I think they went a little too far. I'd say they went a little too far on certain characters, but certain characters feel like... uh We can talk about the names without giving spoilers, but like Mint has a very normal design. Yeah, I liked Mint's character design. She's basically just wearing uh, shorts and kind of like a tunic. Um, we're trying to think of some of the others. Uh, Saffron's, it doesn't feel too overdone because she just feels like, you know, a carpenter because she's got the, the overalls half off and then like a tank top. But then you do have some that are... Roxanne's way... I, I, I was actually going to say Zidriel. Yeah, Zidriel's way busy. I mean... Zidriel is supposed to be like a rock star or something. So, so was, yeah, you at least you at least have uh, that to give them. Yeah, I, I kind of give it a pass because, I mean, you see some of the crap people perform in. Like, she's definitely not Guar tier. <laughs> yeah, no. But some of the characters definitely do go a bit far. But then I think some of them do end up having a more muted appearance like Corsac. Uh, Corsac, he just looks, you know, like a ranger. Yeah, I think for me, the issue was more about their their facial expressions and their, like, motions. Their, when, when the characters are performing some sort of action, it's, like, very overacted. And I compared that to, if you look at a TikTok video, like, go to the TikTok cringe subreddit and look at some of those people who were doing the extremely overly animated facial expressions and stuff. The hyper-expressive TikTok videos, that was a trend for a while. Thanks to whatever, I think that Bella Porch was her name who started that, that major trend. Uh, a lot of that reminds me of that old fad, and I kind of found that really off-putting when it made me think of that stuff. Yeah, I wasn't as off-put about that because to me, that TikTok trend was copying you know, Pixar movies, other animated movies that have that, so it looks less awful to me when it's being done by you know actual cartoony 3d characters as opposed to um real people with like the weird filters that stretch their mouth and do all that (laughs) yeah i i will give a caveat here that is i am hypersensitive to cringe i cannot stand it 
personally, I, I avoid it at all costs. So maybe that's why it, it was reminding me with this extremely negative association that I have. Yeah, because I, I just see, I look at it in the way that I don't think it was trying to imitate the TikTok cringe style. I think it was trying to imitate what the TikTok style was trying to imitate. That's fair. So, you That's know, fair. Your association isn't unwarranted. It's just that, you know, like nobody thought about like the old Pixar movies or, you know, like, you know, stuff like The Incredibles, for example. They have very expressive characters, but it didn't look as bad because of, you know, it's 3D models. They're very clearly cartoony. But then when people do that on TikTok, you know, you see these awful things with like these, you know, actual real world people and it just looks wrong. What's what's the term? Uncanny Valley? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it gets into that. So for me, this didn't bother me as much because I thought, you know, it was just trying to imitate the same thing that the TikTok trend was trying to imitate. Yeah, I guess it is pretty close to The Incredibles now that you mention it. Which if you have that negative connotation that you do, you're gonna, you might be sensitive to this. Yeah, I will say I got over it, but yeah. initially, like the first couple of hours, I did find that off-putting. I will point out, we make a point to not talk too much about uh, our time playing this game, but one of the first things that Garrett sent me, uh, and one of the only things was, what the hell do you have us playing? Yeah. Yeah, I was very confused. <laughs> I was very confused. He, he didn't look at it until after the Far Cry episode. He uh, he just messages me. He's like, deck building, dating sim, uh, economic simulation. What the hell is this? I still am not 100% sure, even though I've I've beaten it, what we played. So, other than the characters, I think that the actual world design is really good. Like, you know, when you go on adventures, you kind of have, like, that almost, like, pop-up storybook look. I really liked that. I thought that was really good, and I thought that all of the ingredients had pretty clear, uh, what's it called, uh, designs. You know, you, you had a way to remember them, because by the end of it, I was like, oh, I need... Uh, like 88 purple or something, you know, and they technically all are, we'll get into that, but you know, then you know what to look for, you know, oh, I want a little bit of everything. I go grab the rainbow colored fire. I want, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They all have pretty good designs that you do have to learn. None of the items for the ingredients would strike me as being out of place in pretty much any RPG where you're picking them up as loot, basically. Yeah, exactly. As long as it's more of a cartoony JRPG style, you know, more Dragon Quest, not Skyrim. And just to further describe what the ingredients look like, they are not a 3D model. They have a, it's not a sprite, it's like a piece of art that is, it looks like it's just a large piece of art that could, could fill the whole screen. It's just they scale it up and down depending on what menu you're in and how many of them they want to display at a time. It's just like a 2D piece of art that'll kind of like, you know, float, uh, appear to be floating in the menu or whatever. It doesn't change, though. So if you see what you were talking about, the rainbow flame ember of mana, I think there's several different ones. Yeah. That, like like tiers of that ingredient. But if you know what that icon looks like, it always looks like that no matter what menu you're in. So it's really easy to distinguish them from each other. And which is very important, especially in the end game when you're going to have so many because there are yeah hundreds of ingredients by the end and at the end you start sort of developing recipes for potions 
Whereas progressing through the game, there's a good chance you're going to use like 80% of the ingredients that you receive. You know, you, you'll be churning them through. So uh, over time, you'll sort of be able to determine which ones are more useful for you, which potions you like making or whatever. And so you can flip through the menus real quick and be like, oh, yeah, there's that little root thing that looks like a like a long animal, kind of. Yeah. So it becomes uh, it's very important to the actual gameplay flow that all of these ingredients have clear identities and designs you know you can remember them now it's a lot to remember because of how many there are but i think that's one of the things that the very stylized uh it, it helps with because you know try to imagine doing this with like very simple designs things would get so mixed up oh yeah uh under the the ui um i have a note that says you know it's very important that they got this ui correct Otherwise, this game could literally have just been a spreadsheet simulator. So all of these layers and layers of art and style that they put over the mechanics remove it farther and farther from being the spreadsheet simulator that it kind of is underneath. And, you know, there are a lot of people who really love spreadsheets or spreadsheet simulators. I'm not one of those people. One of my favorite games of all time is Crusader Kings 2, so... Yeah, that you know, game I, is what I would describe as UI hell. I think I lasted about 30 minutes. This game has a way better UI than Crusader Kings. Crusader Kings has the most ridiculous, like, point of entry. It's only more... Or the only game that I can think that's more obtuse is Dwarf Fortress. I played this one MLB game that was kind of worse, but... It was like a management sim that was really bad, but yeah. Their models for the characters should be mentioned they are 3d models that stylistically i would compare them most closely to fortnite character models they kind of have the whole like their hands seem really big sometimes and their proportions are more cartoony but they're high quality models that communicate what they're trying to communicate stylistically and the textures that are on them I, they're very flat, but I think that was intentional because they're leading, leaning into that 3D cartoon aesthetic, kind of like a Pixar film or like Fortnite or something. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Also, Fortnite models are always going to confuse me because why, why the hell does Master Chief look better in Fortnite than he does Infinite? Because 343 bad? I don't know. Probably. So, yeah, the... um. I think the Fortnite comparison, because it's one of the other games that kind of uses this art style. Yeah, and I don't know if... too many that do. I don't know if Fortnite really pioneered it. I don't think they did. I think they just kind of adapted it and... They're just the most popular at this mm -hmm, point. Blew it up into something huge, so it's kind of impossible to associate it with anything except them. Uh, How did it it run for you, performance-wise, like graphically? I, I never had any problems at all. Yeah, it ran fantastic on PC. Um, so the UI, we touched on that. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to say about the UI, Austin? The UI is hard to separate from gameplay. Um, but I'll do my best. So this game really is a menu simulator. Whenever mm-hmm. you start it, you have a menu on the side 
that will give you things such as, you know, your goals for the upcoming week. Uh, it's got like a travel thing to go around and visit the other uh, characters. It's got, you know, your brewing, your uh, open the shop, etc. And each of these menus, with the exception of some that start a, you know, what do you call it, like a mini game almost? Um, yeah. With the exception of those that start new gameplay elements, all of them will lead you into a sub menu. But despite how menu heavy this is, I think the positions of all the buttons, everything feels very fluid. It feels like it works. Yeah, and every screen feels distinct. It doesn't, you're not getting lost, you know? It's not like you press a pause menu and it's the background's always the same and you're like navigating, you know, oh, let me go to options, graphic options, advanced options, you know, where everything looks the same but the words change. It doesn't feel like navigating a start menu. It feels when you are in the potion brewing menu, that looks completely different from the map menu, which looks completely different from the start and adventure menu, which looks completely different from, you know, ad infinitum. Yeah, which I will say that I think um, a lot of people might, uh, whenever they hear that, you know, all these menus look different in that. It, or a lot of people, if they have not played it, might think that it is uh, not cohesive. But they all feel cohesive for the menu that they're in, and it doesn't feel like you're stepping into a different game necessarily. All of the menus are made to complement the gameplay element that that menu is displaying. Exactly. And stylistically, they are cohesive. The art direction ties all of it together. And looking at the menu, like you said, really communicates what its purpose is. And that's another reason why I'm saying it's kind of hard to get lost. Because if you, you know, if you pause the game or like me, you know, put the Steam Deck in sleep mode, put it down and come back, pick it up. And I remember, oh, yeah, I was about to start an adventure with Zidriel. So let me give her some potions or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's good because... Games like this with all these menus, it, it can be it can quickly end up bad if they don't have the proper UI. Like Garrett, like I imagine whenever you played Crusader Kings, you were like, How do I check line of succession? And you spend like six six minutes, you know, like looking through all these menus, like where the hell is it? And then Yeah, what am I doing? What's going on? I don't know why I'm here. All I know is I must rule. Cause king. Yeah, so this game, there's never really a moment where you're like, I don't know how to get to what I want to do. That's right, yeah. And it's it's not something that has to be tutorialized very heavily. It's pretty self-explanatory, which I think is a good thing. I do too. Um, it, uh, it helps the game a lot because there are a lot of gameplay elements at work here. And if they were all more complex or more obtuse, it would be a problem. Yeah, this game, instead of building four overlapping gameplay elements and making them really, really complex, you're always going to interact with like a dozen or more different systems that are all pretty shallow and interact with each other in predictable ways. Yeah, and we'll get into that more in the gameplay, but I don't want to give the impression that the shallowness necessarily hurts it, because in a way I think it does actually help a bit because of how many systems there are 
uh, the predictable ways that they interact, they help, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't want it to be more obtuse than it is, especially for the atmosphere that the game is, is going for. It definitely is a more lax atmosphere. Uh, that's a good way to put the art direction. It's very casual. Uh, you know, it's not stressful. No, the casual... Saying that it's a casual game is not a derogatory statement at all. It, it, the way my life is, like a casual game, you know, I think this kind of is leading more towards the civilization crowd where you could sort of, you could, you could pick it up and play a couple turns, but it's kind of trying to persuade you not, not to put it down after two turns. It kind of wants you to keep playing, you know, I'll just let me grab one more day. That's a good way to put it because when you look at it, the days could be considered like turns. And then, and then just like in civilization, whenever, you know, you start a civilization, your first turn takes, what, one second? Because you just choose where to found your city, and that's it. And then, uh, you know, by the end, you know, turn like 30-something. Turns take a while because you got a bunch of cities. Yep. And that's kind of how this game, it builds on that. Because your first few days, you, you can't do anything, practically. And then slowly you get access to more and more stuff and it uh causes it to expand yeah now that's kind of a high level view of the gameplay we're gonna get into the nitty-gritty of that but before we do i think we need to talk about the audio yes um you want to start with this one yeah what'd you think about the voices uh what voices yeah there aren't any (laughs) which it I I understand because as we uh, discussed, this was sort of the breakout title, and I they didn't have I I imagine they didn't really have the money for voice acting. I think they did. I think they had think the they money did? for. I think they had the money for voice acting, and they made a decision to instead spend it somewhere else. You know, in all honesty, I don't hate that because I'm not. Or I know a lot of people they want voice acting. In their games, so, you know, they have that voice acting. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly care because when it comes down to it, I would rather play uh, a game with no voice acting than a game with bad voice acting. So would I, and I agree with the decision as well. Do you know where I think they spent that money on the music? Yeah, those instruments, those are real. They're real. Those are real. Yep, I listened to the soundtrack in the car with my daughter, who's about to be two. And she absolutely loved the soundtrack, but I uh, I use YouTube Music, and it by default will play the video that accompanies the music as well. And so you know I had it sitting on my little phone caddy, plugged up, charging, and here I was thinking I was just going to be seeing the box art of the game, and no, it was like a full orchestra playing the soundtrack of this game. I had no idea, but that's Dude. really awesome, and I think that that's. Like you said, if they made that decision, that's a smart one because you interact with menus more than you do characters. Like characters, you interact with a lot, but you know, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, I'd say you spend the most time in the potion brewing. So having good music there definitely means a lot. I'm going to be honest with you, man. I adore this soundtrack. I think this is probably my favorite soundtrack of any game we've done so far, even competing with Ace Combat 5. I don't think it's better than Ace Combat 5, but I think it like stands with it. They're, it's hard to compare those two soundtracks because of how radically different they are. But yeah. in terms of, like you said, staying alongside it, they both complement the game that they are attached to perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I think the tracks in this game, they're all incredibly diverse. I think that each track 
speaks to the design of the character or the mechanic that it's associated with. For instance, this is the song that plays when you are visiting Zidriel to send her on a mission, or this is the song that plays when you're brewing potions, or this is the song that plays when you're selling potions. And I think each one accompanies its intended target, I guess, very well. I agree. You know how um, I told you that I bumped up Far Cry 2 a little bit because I used some of the music from it for one of my tabletop games? Yeah. Totally took a bunch of music from this, too. You did? I'm not surprised. Yeah, I, I figured you would. Really fits the, because uh, you know I run a Final Fantasy tabletop. It fits uh-huh. the vibe a lot. Yeah, even right now I can hear the little potion brewing song in my head. So it's very it's catchy. catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one song that I want to mention. What's What'd that? you think about a uh, salt and peppers theme? Meow, 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 meow. I freaking love that, dude. I can sing it, it right now. Me. It killed me. <laughs> so uh, we'll get into them in the characters, but you go to, to visit these new people who pop up in what, like week two, maybe, or something? I and feel like it maybe it was later than that. <laughs> so, yeah, was... so the, you just see these little cat heads on the uh, thing, and you go uh. there, and it's pirate cats, and they have like a sea shanty made out of cat meows. It's hilarious. It's the best thing, dude. That's so funny. I I literally had to stop playing. I was laughing so much because I I got this game because a friend recommended it to me, and mm-hmm. uh, the entire time I was because I, I started off pr- playing pretty slow because you know job, and mm-hmm. um he was just like kept asking me, "Have you made it to the song yet?" And I'm like, "What? I mean, the soundtrack's good. What song are you talking about?" And he's like, "You'll know." And he just kept asking me. I was like, how am I supposed to know? The whole soundtrack's good. And then eventually later on, I go to the docks and, you know, I meet these cats and I hear that song. I'm like, I know. He's right. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, so soundtrack, I think, but gets a glowing review from both of us. Yeah, I think so, too. That's probably the best part of this game. I'd say so. Yeah, it, it's either the soundtrack or what we're going to get into and just how they wove together multiple gameplay systems uh, in a cohesive manner. The sound effects? What do you think about them? I thought it was a mixed bag, to use one of your terms. Very pleasing clinks and clunks when you're moving potions and stuff around. The one thing that I found weird and kind of out of place is when you're in the visual novel sections, when you're talking to characters, they make motions and stuff. There's like these weird sound effects of their clothes rustling, like a like an ASMR thing, <laughs> and I did not like that. I don't like ASMR. It happens, it happens mostly in the contests. Whenever you uh, make someone angry, they'll, like, you know, kind of flip out and flail around a bit, and instead of, like, getting, you know, a normal, like, kind of cartoony sound effect, you get just fabric rustling together. It's a little weird. It sounds like if I take my hoodie and rub it on the microphone right now, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, and you know what? There is an, actually an option to turn that off. In the I didn't audio. know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah hey, so. They at least know that. Um, but like mm-hmm. you said, the potion brewing sound effects are great. I love the clinking. I love the, the sound of, you know, the dropping an ingredient into the cauldron. That's good. Uh, the actual brewing sound is very good. I thought that was all great. And then it's generic, but whenever you make a sale, the sound of, you know, the money piling up and then the ding, very satisfying, especially when you make a big sale. Yeah, that that has that good old endorphin, you know, this makes my brain release the good chemicals kind of thing. Sort of what you associate with, I don't know, what the whole loot box trend was trying to accomplish, you know? The 
Pavlovian reaction of I I push the button and the good thing happens, you know? Very much they, so. They definitely did that. Yeah. Except with the clothing. If you play this game, turn those sounds off. I would agree with that. But, uh, I wish I did. I didn't know that was a thing. All right. Uh, ready to move on to gameplay? Let's do it. Why don't you start us off, Austin? Okay. So, it's impossible to talk about the overall gameplay without first getting into a tiny bit of story. We're going to actually go into the story later, so don't worry, no spoilers yet. But the only thing that you need to know, and this isn't a spoiler because if you purchase the game, this is on the title screen, is the entire game revolves around running a potion shop. And you are the only worker there. So you have to do every job yourself. Owner-operator. Yep, owner-operator. What this entails, a, let's go through like a general you know, start to finish on how to make a sale. The first thing you have to do is acquire ingredients for potions. And the way you do that is either by purchasing basic ingredients, uh, the ingredient vendor. Alternatively, you can hire adventurers to go out to these locations, and you have to give them potions, but in return they will come back and bring you ingredients. And then once you have acquired an ingredient from any means, you can give it to the ingredient vendor, and then they will add that to their permanent shop. Yeah, but it does expend that ingredient. It expends that specific ingredient. Now, it is not optional to give the heroes who are going on the adventures uh, potions because it determines how far they get. So, you know, say you send them to the volcano-looking area, you got to give them a fire-resistance potion. Or they're going to, you know, die. You have to give them mana potions for each fight they're going to have and health potions to recover their HP. It actually just increases their bar. You know, sometimes you will have uh, cures. So, like, maybe one area is known for having, like, Medusas. You got to give them a Petrify cure. And a lot of these potions have very specific requirements. Like, oh, if you want to cure this radiation poison, it has to be a masterwork, you know. And for sending these adventurers in, it's worth mentioning, it's not like something you get to really watch, necessarily. You see just a little storybook pop-up thing, which just has icons on it that will tell you how many obstacles they'll have to face and what sort of obstacle that is. You have the option to give them a potion to overcome that or not. And like Austin said, if you don't do it, they will, whatever, die or get knocked out by whatever that was, like let's say the Petrify Cure, if you don't give them a Petrify Cure, they face a Medusa, they'll have to come back. You you get less ingredients for the same amount of money, but I guess you might save a potion. Yeah. So whenever I said like alternatively you can do this, I shouldn't have said alternatively. You have to do this. Because if you try to beat this game using only the ingredient vendor stuff, it's impossible. It's 100% impossible. Yeah. You have to constantly be getting new ingredients. There are more ways to get ingredients later that will come up. I guess I could see someone doing a no adventure challenge run, but it would not be easy or even really feasible, especially not for your first time. So for me, this was definitely not your first time. This was one of my primary ways. Eventually, this became my primary way of getting ingredients. So, after you've received these ingredients by hook or by crook, what do you do? Once you receive the ingredients, we're going to be treating the rest of this like game plan thing. 
as if you're already set up for operations, and then we'll go into what that means later. So once you acquire the ingredients, you take them back to the storefront, and you go to the potion brewing menu. Every potion that is in the game has a recipe, and every ingredient has a certain amount of, what is it, magamen, I believe is what it's Ma- called. Magimen, I guess? Yeah, magimen. M- magic um, minerals. Oh, that's 100% what it is. Okay, so uh, we're just going to call it magic. Now, they are uh, coded as A, B, C, D, E. However, I, all, I found it more simple to think of them as the colors that they represent. And every ingredient is applied a certain value of these. So if you want to make a health potion, that ratio is 1 to 1 red uh, magimen and green magimen. So what you want to do is try to throw your best ingredients of that those two colors uh, into the pot and get the ratio as close as you can. Every five stars that you make it breaks it up to the next tier of potion. So there's, you know, like basic ones, but by the end you're making uh, masterwork potions. Yeah, so, so what is it? What, what's the scale? <clears throat> do you know what it is? There's uh, six different I- ones, right? There is. Do you happen to remember it? Because I don't right now, and I don't have a note for that. Okay, are you ready? Minor, common, greater, grand, superior, and masterwork. Correct. So the way that this uh, works is that it determines the tier of the potion based on the magamin count in it. So if you had 20, or, you know, 20 red and 20 green uh, in a potion, that would make it a four-star minor because it has a total magamin of 40. However, because it was perfectly balanced, it would raise a star and could potentially raise another star. So that is the juggling thing later on is you have to try to put in your best ingredients while also keeping a balance. Now, the, the uh, health potion is the easiest of these because it's just red and green. Later on, the high-tier potions, they'll have three or maybe even four uh, ingredients that you have to juggle. And the closer you can get to the ratio, the higher chance you have of it raising its value above its actual magnum ca- uh, cost. Yeah, that's right. And there are, what, five different types of magimens? There's A, B, D, C, and E? Is that, that right? Yeah, which are red, green, yellow, uh, blue, purple, and... The way that I looked at it, the way that it was easy for me to remember is that, it, like, a letter grade for how common they are, E being yeah. the least common and A being the most common, but that's, that's just the way that I looked at it. One more thing to think about for this balancing act, the number of ingredients that you put in. So you're putting them in cauldrons, and this may be sort of getting into the more complicated side of it, but cauldrons have a limit to the total number of magimens that that you can put in there. So let's just, for, for simplicity's sake, say that you have a cauldron that can hold four ingredients and 100 magimens. If you put in two ingredients, one ingredient that has 50 A magimens and one ingredient that has 50 B magimens, you have put in two ingredients. Every two ingredients, you get one potion. But you've filled up the cauldron's magimens, so you can't add any more ingredients. It might be better to do four lesser 
ingredients, so that way you get two potions out of one brewing cycle. Yeah, so that is an important thing to note, is that cauldrons have two values, like he said. They have the total magumens and then their total uh, ingredients. And so that is part of the progression, is constantly upgrading your cauldrons and replacing them, getting new ones. Because it's actually just legitimately impossible to brew the high-tier stuff in the starting cauldron. You just can't. Literally impossible. Yeah, it's not like where every cauldron is viable as the game goes on. This is sort of an RPG mechanic in that way, and that as you're progressing, you do get better and better equipment and phase out the old stuff. Which, uh, what, what, what do you get to do with those after they're no longer viable? They get to look nice on your shelf? Yeah, nothing. They, they just junk up your inventory. I wish there was a way to sell them. I really do. Like, I... I don't care if it's for, like, half of what I paid. I just want some way to sell them. Disassemble them for ingredients would be nice. That would be, because a lot of them do have at least the upgraded ones. Mm-hmm. So, once a potion is brewed, regardless of quality, it is, uh, you have to wait a certain amount of time. And it is determined by various things. Basically, the potion's complexity determines the brewing time. Uh, I think it's Magamon specifically. But if you want to speed that up, you can put kindling in there. And there's a bunch of different types of kindling, and what they do is they knock off time. So every day has, I believe, eight time slots, and then overnight things progress like an extra three or something. So, you know, you see a potion and you put it in there, it's like, oh, this is going to take 24 to uh, hourglasses to brew. And you're like, well, that's three days. I can't wait for that. I need the money. So then you throw in... Uh, three different kindlings, you get it down to like eight, and you're like, okay, it'll be ready by tomorrow now. <laughs> there are, see, you see what we mean when we say that there are many different simple systems that sort of overlap, like, oh, hey, it's a fire, you put in more kindling, the fire burns hotter, makes the potion brew faster, but on its own, that's super simple, you know? But when you overlay that with, I'm also balancing... My Magiuman count, the ingredient count, I'm balancing what potion I'm brewing and for what purpose. Am I making this to sell or am I making this to give to an adventurer to get them through an adventure? Because you would want to brew those two potions differently. You would want to be more conservative with the ingredients. You'd want to save your best ingredients for the uh, potions that you're selling and just get the potion good enough, you know, to make your adventurer get over the obstacle that you're trying to get them through. So you don't have to touch the adventurer minigame at all when you're making a potion, but you do have to think about it. And that is a uh, large portion of this game is you think about the other systems as you're doing systems. And this game sounds so complicated talking about it, but I promise that whenever you got, it's not that complicated. No. It all it's much easier to do rather than talk. Um he was talking about how you want to save your better potions for selling, and there is a thing that comes into play with that. With ingredients have certain traits, and these traits have things such as smells good, smells bad. Uh, you know, and and what they do is these uh raise and lower value i've heard they are taste sensation aroma visual and sound 
And the way those work is negative traits lower the base value. It may be about 5% for each one. I don't remember fully. But uh, negative traits lower, positive traits raise. So for your, uh, for your adventurer, you don't have to worry about that. They don't care about the taste of a potion. They don't care about the look of a potion. They just need it to function. And you don't need the value from it. You need the uh, gameplay from it. But whenever you're selling things, you want to keep in mind all the different uh, traits because those will increase your price and they can be the difference in a uh, good sale and a bad one. I will say personally, I ignored this mechanic entirely. And the reason that I did that is because for another system we are about to describe, I chose an option that allowed me to make a sale with a special effect that caused the purchaser to also ignore whether a potion had negative traits or not. Yes, so that is a good time to segue into the next thing. So once a potion is brewed, you know, you set aside the ones that are going to be for the adventurers. You know, you're like, okay, I want to go to the Radiation Land later. I'm going to set aside mint, like four health potions, two mana potions, and a... uh, Tolerance potion if you're going to give her that much stuff. And a radiation tonic. But I'm giving her the radiation tonic that tastes bad and doesn't have any stars. It's just good enough to get her through the radiation. Mint's fine. She'll she'll handle it. Mm -hmm. Um, She's a champ. Yeah, one thing we didn't mention back in the adventures thing is as you use adventurers, they level up. Do they? Yeah, so what it does is it just increases their base stats a little bit. Okay. I didn't notice. Mine never got any better, and I use them like every day. It's minor. I'm pretty sure I saw that happening. Or maybe it's based on a relationship. I don't know. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that I remember uh, Mint's base uh, HP and stuff increasing. Okay, cool. So after you've got these potions, you have to display them in your shop. You have shelves, which they're kind of the same story as the cauldrons. You do unlock better ones as time progresses. so, they are themed, both cauldrons and shelves are themed over the various adventure zones. So, there's, like, the ice zone, and then the, I don't know exactly what it's called, I think Frozen Step, and then there's the Frozen Step cauldron, there's the Frozen Step shelf, which will have their own stats, and will be upgraded with ingredients that are harvested by your heroes from those zones, and once you put the shelf out, um, they will have a different bonus for various potions. And like I said, some of them are straight-up upgrades, but it would be like, this shelf provides a 10% increase in value for all potions, but an additional 15% for tonics or for cures. So that's another thing you have to consider, like, oh, I got... 15 cures I'm going to sell. Let me get all my shelves out that provide bonus value for cures. Yep. That is, once again, you know, another gameplay element you're going to have to do. And all of the, uh, I will say that all the shelves and cauldrons, they go, they fold into the art style we talked about earlier where they have very defined appearances, so you kind of know what they do. Yeah, the one from the Frozen Step looks like a big chunk of ice or something, so there you go. Yeah. The one that's from the uh, magma place, kind of, you know, it's got like uh, molten, sort of. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I like I liked that, the way that they looked. 
So you, you, oh, also, as you upgrade them, it opens up additional slots. So it's like, this shelf can hold three potions, I upgrade it, now it can hold four potions, I upgrade it again, now it can hold five potions. So you put your potions out on the shelf. Yep. And uh, once you put a potion on the shelf, that's basically advertising it as able to be sold. And then at any point, you can do a open store thing. And what that does is it starts the a unique gameplay. So whereas the potion brewing is a gameplay element, the adventure is a gameplay element, this is the most important gameplay element, but only a little bit because they are all folding together, you know? That's right. So what this is, a customer will walk in, they will find the potion that they want to purchase, they'll place it on the table, and it'll have a base value based on the customer's starting opinion as well as the potion's actual value. And then haggling starts, because this uh, town exclusively runs on haggling. That's right. And there are some further modifiers that can be placed on potions at this point based on events that are determined semi-randomly at the beginnings of days. Sometimes um, sometimes certain potions will have increased values, like we're talking about selling radiation cures. It can say, oh, today there's a 10% increase in value for radiation potions, or it could be something that says, hey, everyone's coming to the market today, so all of the customers start with a buff for Sylvia, your main character, which causes all increased interest applied to be further increased by 25%. So, you know, this car would increase it by four, the, increase the price by 4% or whatever. Now it's a 5% increase instead, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. that goes into this. Yet but another actual- super simple, I mean, I, you know, how long did that take? Like 30 seconds to explain random event? That's a mm-hmm. straight percentage increase or decrease, but yep. that's just one more layer that you have to consider or or choose to ignore. I mean, you could ignore it and still beat the game. You're gonna you're gonna hurt though if you spent all your money making like radiation cures and then you get that event where cures are fifty percent of their normal value. <laughs> yeah, and you, sold, and you try to sell all of them all. I mean, it it does make it very obvious you shouldn't do that because you'll put them up there and they'll have a red number that's like, hey, these are at a lower value. You sure you want to do this? So, once haggling actually starts, this is where the deck building comes in. Oh, yeah. It's a deck builder game, too, like we said. We mentioned that, right? I think so, because it's a deck building, dating sim, (laughs) potion brewing, uh, economic simulator. Romance, visual novel. Yeah. So, you start with a certain deck of cards, and these have different effects. Your goal is to raise the customer's interest. Every time you raise it above another threshold, it increases their value of your potion. Along the while, every customer has patience that is different depending on the customer type. So, you know, a fast-talking businesswoman is going to have way less patience than, you know, just some old farmer who came in. He's just a good old boy. Um, And what that does is patience directly lets you know how many times you can interact with this person. So, you know, somebody might come in with eight patients and lose two patients on the first turn, three patients on the second turn, you know, and you got to sell that right then. Or otherwise, you know, that's it. Now, all your cards will help this. So some raise interest. Some uh, give you shields because on the customer's turn, because it goes back and forth, 
they'll like shit talk your potion and it makes Sylvia stressed. Stress is kind of like your HP. Yeah. So as stress builds, it is a percentage bar. Um, so if you're at 10% stress, every time you draw a card, it has a 10% chance of being a stress card, which are useless. Uh, in fact, they're worse than useless. They're mm -hmm. detrimental because some of the stress cards increase stress. Uh, so you can easily go in a downward spiral if you, you know, don't handle it well. It's a snowball of pain. And by the way, tell me that that draw percentage is not some freaking XCOM logic. It'll tell it's, it's you... It's gotta be. It'll it tell you 10% chance to draw a stress card, and then you'll draw a hand of four cards, and three of them are stress cards. I, oh my god, it was awful. It was awful at times. But anyway, so your whole goal is to, you build, or you put shields on yourself with certain cards that will stop Sylvia from getting stressed, because my god, you want to avoid stress. And then you are trying to raise the customer's interest, and then patience if you can, which will give you more time. And all the cards interact with that in certain ways, and they have deeper mechanics. Some cards only give massive bonuses if you use them on the first turn, or, or if, they, if it's the first card you play on the turn. Some cards start in your hand. Some cards, uh, you know, give people back patience. Some cards start basically a dot effect where it's like compounding interest. Every single turn, the customer's interest doubles, you know, like, but all right. Dot is damage over time, for those of you who don't know. Yes, sorry, MMO fan, so, you know, mm -hmm. been using that a lot. So you have all these different things, they all interact with them in different ways. And then your goal is to try to get the interest as high as you can before you close the sale. You can always just hit the close sale button and take whatever the base value is. Um, but you want to try to haggle it as high as you can. And then certain cards are considered closer cards, and what those do is if you... Or, once you play them, it immediately ends the sale, but increases your final value by, like, a certain percentage. So Sylvie starts with one of those, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm, she does. Close it out is what it's called. Yeah, and then you, you can get others, and then some of the other ones give bonus effects, too. Like, uh, one girl gives you a card that it closes out a sale and makes the customer ignore one or more of the negative potion traits, which will give you way, way more of a buff. Because, you know, yeah. say, like, it, it or closing it out with that card increases the value by, like, 5 or 7%. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, and then ignoring one of the traits also raises it by, like, another 5%. So you definitely want to try to close with a closer card when you can. There is one more way to close out a sale. Other than the, there is a button to close it out at any time. You can play a closer card you can max out their interest. Oh, yeah. How many times yeah. did you manage to do that? Uh, a couple. I'll, I have an explanation for this, which is kind of why I want to talk about how you get cards. Because I want to talk about how you get cards, and then we can talk about the decks that we built. Sounds good to me. Go Or you want to take away how you get cards? Yeah, so there are a lot of different characters in this game. I mean, a lot. This is a very character-centric game. And it has a sort of visual novel slash dating sim aspect to it think of stardew valley i think this game was heavily inspired by stardew valley it's impossible to i could definitely see that it's impossible to ignore the stardew valley influence but if you think about you have a relationship meter with every character in this game and as you progress the character meter every character will give you a card that has an effect in haggling which is themed off of the character that gave it to you. So one character has crippling anxiety <laughs> and the cards that they give you actually 
are based off of how stressed you are, it's quote unquote using stress to your benefit. Uh, jury's still out on whether that's useful because I hated being stressed so much I refused to use those cards. Same. There's there's another character who is extremely charismatic and the cards that he gives you focus on increasing the amount of patience that your opponent will have so you can keep them in the sale longer. Baptiste, my beloved. I swear he has the best cards of the game. Uh, I'll tell you who I think has the best cards in the game, and that's Owl. Owl is the, one of the first characters yeah. you, you'll meet, and that character gives you draw cards. So, do you want to... You like Baptiste, right? What was your deck like? So I mostly used Baptiste and Quinn with like a few of the starting things from other people, but my deck was based around increasing people's patience and putting tons of dot on them. Okay, so how did you avoid taking stress damage if you were... I had shields. So yeah, you like put I a would, bunch of shield cards in? Okay. I, I had a few shield cards that I would do, um, but generally what I would do is uh, I, Quinn has a card that's like shock value, I think is the name of it. Uh-huh. And what it are and what it does is, if you are at the uh, start, if it's your opener card, it will uh, you know raise interest by seventeen, which is a pretty big number. Yeah. Um. But then Quinn also has a lot of stuff like plant the seed, which is raises interest by eight at the start of customer's turn. That's very good. Quinn also gets a draw card, and or it's a draw card that is a raise interest by five draw card. And then the most important part to my build, I think, was Fuel to the Fire. What Fuel to the Fire does is doubles interest applied by buffs and debuffs. Mm. So my goal would, I'd put Plant the Seed, which increases interest by eight at the start of every turn. And I put Compound Interest, which raises interest by four at the start of the customer's turn, and the value doubles each turn. And then I would do Fuel to the Fire. And what that would do is that would give me like 20 plus, like on the first turn, interest every single turn. And then it would go up and up and up. And okay. then the other cards were uh, in my deck were to increase the customer's patience, which is uh, Baptiste cards, and then to just give myself uh, shields, which I kept some of the default Sylvie cards for that, but then I mm-hmm. had uh, a few others. Okay. That sounds... So, I mean, it worked out for you. You were able to beat the game like three times quicker than me. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I will sounded say that effective. I think you're... I think your build is probably better at making sales, but mine was really strong at competitions because I think I could have won competitions even if I was like nowhere near the required value. All right, so let me tell you what mine was, okay? I'm not going to tell you the name of this character or mention who the character is, but there is a character who is a confidence woman or, you know, con man. They are a schmoozer, (laughs) and so... The cards that they have are essentially that. Like, they have that one card that causes you to close out a sale and has the opponent ignore negative traits. There's one that will increase the value, the base value of a potion, by 15% for one turn. It, it's I think charmed is the effect that, it, that it's uh, applying. Yeah, it's and charmed. I don't have good notes for this, so I'm doing this off of memory. There's... Another card that uh, sympathy is an effect that various cards can apply, that increases all interest applied by 25%. 
There's another one. I don't remember what it's called. It increases interest applied by 50%. And those stack. 25% and 50% stack. And then uh, there's a card that applies a massive amount of interest, but gives a debuff to you in exchange for it being a, a slightly lower cost. So I had all of these cards combined with the draw through cards. And so my deck was a turn one build. So rather than putting in a bunch of defensive cards, I'm going to ramp through my deck really quick, apply buffs, and apply a massive amount of interest while taking debuffs to myself and then close out the sale on turn one no matter what so i never take stress that's a smart uh build yeah i really enjoyed that one i built that more out of frustration i did not like the way that the stress mechanic felt i really hated it and i wanted to interact with that as little as possible and so i tried to find a way around that i don't want to say necessarily like that I felt good about that playstyle. I felt frustrated that I was forced into playing like that. I can understand that because the stress does get into, as you said, um, XCOM levels where I feel like mm -hmm. those values are meaningless. What it shows, um, and I wish there was I wish there was more counterplay for stress. Um, mm -hmm. But it feels like unless you have specific people, because the moth is the only one who can really has interacts with stress at all, other than shielding yourself from it. Think about oh. Slay the Spire, which this was yep. obviously based off of, inspired by. 100%. There are curse cards, which are the same kind of thing as a, as a stress card. It's both useless and also it, hurt, it hurts you. It could take away your XP or, or take away your mana or whatever in Slay the Spire. So there are items you can get or other cards you can get give you increases in your character's abilities based off of curse cards. So if you get the, I think there's one that it's like a top that if you draw a curse card, draw another card or uh, you get an increase, a straight up increase in your character strength based on how many curse cards are in your deck. And so it's possible to synergize and I've won runs with curse decks in slay the spire. And as far as I could tell, I didn't try playing with, Luna's cards, but looking at them and reading them, it does not seem like they come anywhere close to the amount of effectiveness that you could have in Slay the Spire, for instance. I would agree with that. It's like half baked, kind of. It's like they were trying to do that, but they couldn't, they didn't quite get there. Now, that said, that's. I was going to say really quick, you also get Luna way too late. Yeah, exactly. At that point, you're, I was very stress averse, which I am in real life. <laughs> In real life, also. I'm a business owner, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is like, hey, let me close my business in real life to go open my business in this f***ing video game. That was great, right? Yep. So, I think not interacting with the stress mechanic as much as you can is definitely for the best. You want to try to, because it's... it. Stress is not fun. To quote what we said from uh, Lost Kingdom, stress is cringe. <laughs> Um, cringe but one thing i will say because your deck you know like that is a that's a good deck this game really does lend itself to being able to make broken decks it has good deck expression you know yep. you can you have different play styles like you had a one turn and i just dragged it out like we played antithetical builds really which is good for discussion purposes it is so 
That is how you make a sale. Now, I'm going to point out that there are several other mechanics that we didn't talk about yet because they are what I would just consider layers of the previous mechanics. Like, for example, we talked about cauldrons and what they can hold. But to get cauldrons, you have to go uh, to the blacksmith who can you can purchase those. And then you can upgrade them with stuff that you get from adventures. And to get shelves, you have to get those from, you know, the somebody. And then to even have a spot to put them, you have to have the carpenter expand your place. And then later on, you get... Uh, uh, what's it called? Aging barrels to increase the value of potions even more. And the value of potions is very important because that's what determines if you win the competitions. And the whole game is kind of a backdrop for this. You're gaining money, but you are in debt and you have to win these five competitions to escape debt. Each of the competitions has a certain uh, enemy who you'll be fighting for that competition. And then... Uh, it has required potions. Like the first competition might be, okay, you got to make a uh, superior mana potion, uh, a superior health potion, and then, you know, like a greater tolerance or something. I don't remember yeah. the exact thing. Uh, and then you have to, you know, gather this and then set that aside. You can't sell that because if you accidentally sell the potion you meant to, to go into a competition, that's bad. Happened to me once. Um, eventually I started just putting them on the display shelf so that, you know, I wouldn't... Exactly, that's what I did, yeah. There is one further consideration that we need to talk about that overarches and encapsulates all of these other mechanics we have described thus far, and that is the time. Yeah, the time. Time is a currency that you spend to do things. We've mentioned it a little bit, it takes time to brew potions, but so does everything else. Going to town takes time. So you want to make, I mean, unless you have a really good reason, you want to make one trip to town a day, if that. So take your one trip into town and buy all the ingredients you need, send all the adventurers out, collect all of your ingredients from the previous adventurers, everything like that. The aging barrels that he mentioned, it's just a flat percentage increase to the value of a potion, but it takes time. So you have to consider, do I want to sell this potion right now, or do I want to sell it tomorrow for a 15% increased value? And something I found is that the aging barrels, I never bother with them for any lower price potion because the percentage just wasn't enough for... But for uh, some of the really high-value potions, you know, increasing the value by 15%, that can be a lot. It can. It really can. So, also, selling potions, that takes two time slots. Brewing potions, as Austin said, takes a certain number of time slots that's based on how potent the potion is. And there are eight Six. time... Eight, I was eight, wrong. I looked it up. Eight time slots in a day, two of which are inaccessible oh. <laughs> <laughs> it shows six it will show yeah. you six but yeah, there are the two that pass at night you just can't do anything other than sleep but they do pass for the purposes of brewing potions or aging things or whatever but for all intents and purposes during the day those are inaccessible to you yeah but you have to consider you have to consider those two time slots because they were very important for me 100% because, uh, and also the reason I was trying to interrupt there is because earlier I said there's eight plus two overnight, but it's six <laughs> plus two overnight. Yeah. Um, I was wrong. 
Uh, so yeah, they're early morning, late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, and late evening. And then the two inaccessible, I assume, are early night, late night. Um, but you want to try to make sure that you utilize those time slots overnight uh, as wisely as you can. You know, like if you can get a thing where like, oh, this potion has two to go and it's late evening, it'll be done in the morning. That's right. So let's put it this way. If you are starting off first thing in the morning, you have six time slots in your day and you're going to brew some potions. If you have a potion that you want to be done by tomorrow, there is you need it for tomorrow morning. There is no reason to waste kindling to brew it up to, say, six time slots. You should just go for eight because at six time slots, you're going to be asleep. And then those two overnight time slots, the potion is going to be sitting there ready in the cauldron. You just can't collect it. So you have to sort of consider that. That's another thing, another layer that you have to think about when you're brewing is the time management. This game has more layers than an ogre. And none of the layers are particularly deep. It's just they stack and they stack and they stack. But because not none of them are very deep, it doesn't feel too difficult to get into. It does not have a very high bar of entry like some of the other things that you know I've seen in this genre. It is sort of easy to forget about stuff, though, and miscalculate. It is. But thankfully, if you miscalculate some things, you might just be losing out on 10%. You, mis- or you miscount on your ingredients, well, you may be at down a potion. Also, there's nothing stopping you from saving literally every turn. <laughs> yes, there's nothing stopping you. I might even encourage it. Yeah, get those. I don't think there's a quick save. Did you find any keyboard shortcuts in this game? I didn't really look for them because I was doing fine on the mouse. Yeah, same. If there was like a like a save, quick save, quick load thing, that would be cool. Yeah, so uh, back to the competitions then? Yeah, let's go to the competition. So you've brewed your potions, you've aged them or not, you've bought and sold enough potions to get all of the ingredients to make your one mega potion. So you've made your potion, you're taking it to the competition, your 10 days have passed, and whichever 10 days leading up to the competition, like there's five, right? Yeah, yeah there's five competitions, the game takes place over 50 days. Okay, so all ten of those days have passed. It's competition day. You have your three potions. What now? You enter the competition, and every potion, it has a required thing. Like how much it you, you have to have value on it to even be considered for entry. And this might be something like, oh, a superior uh, health potion. But there are levels to that, because even within the superior category, there's five stars, you know? Yeah, so if you have a three-star superior potion, you're halfway to it being a masterwork potion. Yeah, and then what you have to do is your opponent made a potion too. If your potion is just valued better than theirs, which is harder to do early, but it's easier to do later um, whenever you get more and more ingredients. If your potion is just from the start valued better than... uh. Your opponents, you don't have to interact with the next mechanic. I almost never. I think three of the five competitions, I did not have to haggle at all. Yeah, so 
I had to on the first one because I didn't have the materials to make, you know, super great potions yet. Same. And then I had to on the last one. Same. Yeah. Okay. So it was just the first and the last, the three in between, I was able to pretty much decisively win. Now, let's talk about what happens, though, if you are not able to just decisively win off the potion's base value. Okay. Go right ahead. It's the haggling minigame from the shop. Yeah, but it's like a boss battle version of it. Yeah, the way it works is that you are trying to raise the judge's valuation of your potion, and you do that by using your deck as usual. The entire time, your competitor is throwing insults that will raise your stress. Now, I didn't have to interact with this all that much, so I don't know how some of them do. I know the last competition... They'll spike your stress by a lot. Like, I think I got hit for, like, 30 stress one time, and it was painful. Mm-hmm. I turn one them on all three because <laughs> of my nice. deck. Yeah. Nice. See, my uh, my deck did not aid me there with how much stress he put out. Yeah, the draw draw through, because they have an increased amount of patience as well. So if you have a draw through deck, you could literally go through all 20 cards right at the start. Yeah, and... You know, like, that is rewarding you for good deck management. So once uh, you're trying to just build the value so that it's raised more than your opponent's, and there is no, like, oh, let me max this out. It's just once it reaches above your opponent's, that's it. The round's called. You're good. Yeah, you don't get anything for it. It's not like they're paying you gold for it. The prize you're winning is the quote-unquote prize money which we'll talk about in the story what happens to your prize money (laughs) yeah so once you've won it goes on to the next one as garrett said there are three potions it is a best two out of three once you win the first one you make the opponent mad and they enter their super form basically which is more just them freaking out and losing their composure So then they'll start throwing out more stressful attacks. But it doesn't increase the base value of their potion any. So you might still get to just avoid this. Once you have won two out of three, the the competition, that specific competition is called, you are the winner and you win money. And then uh, the next day, we'll talk about what happens to the money in the story, but the next day will be the introduction to your next competitor. Um, So every week, has one character who you will be competing against, and they will kind of hound you in the story a little bit. Like they, uh, as Garrett mentioned, the daily events, a lot of those will, you know, be affected by these people. Like one of them is a, uh, like a real business tycoon. He's a business shark. He's uh, he's literally a loan shark. He's literally a loan shark and an actual shark. He is a shark man. He's just uh, uh, Bruce from Finding Nemo. He is. But, like, a worse guy. He's, like, bad. He is, you know, an illegal underworld potion seller. And he establishes illegal patents that makes it illegal to sell certain potions. So that's the curveball, is every different competitor uh, will kind of try to throw something in your way. And you'll meet them over the week. I think every one of the competitors, with the exception of the first one, who, you know, becomes a main character, all the other competitors will end up being, like, uh... Or the the first two become main characters. Yeah, the first two, yeah. You'll see them like three times throughout the week, and you'll get more like story and interactions with them. They once again, you know, have the very stylized character designs, and their design, I would say, almost informs their play style and what they do. Like, you know, obviously the lone shark guy, he's going to do some underhanded tactics that the others won't do. 
Yeah, this goes uh, goes back to and speaks more about the stylistic consistency that this game has. Yeah, so design can are inform gameplay, which is very useful for a game like this that has so many things. Now, once uh, we'll talk about the actual story and the story section, but I think it's hard to avoid in the gameplay section talking about. You know, the fact that this is a business tycoon simula- simulator, uh, like Reseteer, if people have played that wonderful game, I uh, recommend that. Isn't that the game that the, the creators of this game said they were heavily inspired by? Yes. yes. I'd literally never heard of it until you told me that. It's more popular in the kind of circles that I'm in rather than you, but it, it's, it's pretty big with them. Now, the problem with this, and there's no way around this, like waiting, or this is in the gameplay, this game does something that most other business tycoon-style games doesn't do. What's that? Whenever you finish the final competition and you are free from your debt, the game ends. There is no free play. There is no endless mode. There is nothing like that. The game ends. When I found out about that, I was, uh, I think I was finishing week three. If I had not had to finish the game for this podcast, I would have uninstalled it. That, that is the worst aspect of the gameplay for me because every single thing about this game lends itself to an endless mode wouldn't you agree like you know just yeah constantly breathing. yeah i mean like i mentioned earlier civilization even after you've completed the technology tree even after you've conquered the globe you can keep playing even if you own everything you could build a city on every tile if you want to nothing stopping you other than the mechanics of the game that's not an option here and I just, I, I, that is unfathomable and unforgivable to me. I, I actually agree. Like, uh, I won't spoil my grade for the game, but it knocked it down a whole point for me. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was, like, invested in the mechanics, you know, not, or because I, I, I wanted to see how much value I could get. I want to see the numbers. I wanted that dopamine rush. I want to fully upgrade my shop. But... It just ends. And I don't mean there's no new game plus. I it, it, it just ends. And there is no option to start again with anything you've done. There's no endless mode. There's no free play mode. There's nothing. The, if you want to go back to your save, I hope you have a save before like the final day. Because otherwise, that's it. And I don't know if it's intentional. Like It's something that they were going for for, you know, because the game is very heavy on time management, and they think it would change it, but I think it was a very bad decision because, like, it, I cannot think that it would actually cost or it would that be that difficult uh, to keep the game going. You know, just, you know, you don't have the required things, just have your days, which I don't know. I don't know if they would think that, you know, it would be it wouldn't have the spirit of the game because, you know, you wouldn't have the competitions to build up. You could technically just rest every day and have no drawbacks to that and not do anything. But, I mean, who cares? If you want to do something, have it be like, okay, you have to make a certain amount each week to keep going. You could even scale that, you know, like after you won. All right, you want to keep... Because by the end of the game, you're going to be making real expensive potions. You could have it some, like, week one post-game. Make 10000 to keep going. You know, do 10000 for a few weeks, then 20000 etc. And then you'll be getting more and more ingredients, and it'd be fun to keep playing. It has this sort of, not quite exponential growth, but um, it kind of reminds me of Cookie Clicker. You think about how long, 
long term those games are where you think, oh, surely I'm nearing the end and it there's just another layer and another layer and another layer. At some point, I wish that after you finish the storyline, after those 50 days, it spit you out into something like that, which is what I thought I was getting when I started playing this game. I did too, because I've never seen a game like this that doesn't do that. I figured that the 50 days were for, you know, kind of your introduction to the game and then it would open up, but that is the game. And that's really unfortunate, especially for me, because, see, I didn't fully upgrade everything. And I would have liked to, you know, with the stuff that I had, because I liked it, I would have liked to continue going and seeing, you know, like what all the full upgrades are. But when it comes down to it, I don't know of a way to do that in a single playthrough to see everything without, you know, following a meticulous, like, guide. Look, this is someone's perfect game. This is a comfort game. This is something that you can sit back, relax, and play a few turns or play all night, just like we said, like Civilization. But there are people out there who are going to fall in love with all of these characters. And sure, they'll want to make, you know, eight different playthroughs to romance eight different characters and see what that's like. But there is somebody out there who is going to want to be on, you know, day 1069, selling a potion worth 420,000 gold or whatever. And I am shooketh that they did not take the opportunity to make this game like that for those people. I just don't know how hard it would have been to do that. Maybe because I'm not a game designer or a game developer, maybe maybe it's more difficult. But like, why is it that this game doesn't do that when, like you said, so many of the other ones do? Exactly. And the thing is, is they would not have to... You know, a lot of games that, you know, you want to have an endless mode, you have to change the very nature of the game. But all the mechanics that would facilitate an endless mode are already in this game. They're already yeah. there. It feels like a very simple change. Missed opportunity, man. Huge. It really, really hurts the game. I had no idea what was going, how this was. And I broke me and Garrett's rule of not talking because I was baffled. Because I beat the game before him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, one-third in one-third of the time. Yeah, so I um, messaged him, like, hey, dude, guess what happens when you beat the game? And he, you're like, you unlock an... I forget if you ask if you unlock an endless or new game plus I said, or something. I said, I said free play mode? Question mark. And, and I sent back nothing. <laughs> Is it Was it Fallout 3 that was like that, and they had to patch it in later with, like, yeah, Point Lookout DLC? It. Yeah. Yep, because if you finish the main storyline... That was just the end. It ends. Yeah, yeah. Imagine how like pissed off people were about that. And and just that's the way that I kind of feel about this game. I mean, I like Fallout 3 better than I like this game. Minor spoiler for my <laughs> for my opinion at the end. But well, I will say that Fallout 3 at least has a way that you can avoid that. Avoid doing the main quest. This doesn't mm-hmm. go do everything and then do the main quest. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can choose even before that patch. You can choose how much of the main quest to interact with. You don't have a choice. Once the 50 days are up, that's the game. You can start again. You get what 300 time slots? Yep. And that's it. You don't get any more. There is no more. <laughs> start over, loser. Yeah, and it's you know 3 300 actions. And that's I I would have uh I'm trying to think how to word this. When I picked this game, 
I picked it with the expectation I didn't look into it because I had already played it a little bit, but I hadn't beat it, uh, and I restarted for the podcast. I picked this game with an expectation that there was going to be a New Game Plus or an Endless or something, and it really, really annoyed me that there wasn't. It just feels, like you said, a real missed opportunity. It feels like it was it was an obvious choice that they didn't do. Yeah, I know this sounds a lot like we're in conclusions, and we're going to talk about the story next, and we're going to go over the characters, but honestly, there's not a whole lot to talk about in the story, so it's going to be somewhat separated from the conclusions, but... You know, you can kind of see where we're headed with this. Uh, Just like in some of the previous games, I will say that while we are going into spoiler territory now, uh, it's really not that spoiler heavy because this game, it's got two air quote twists that are seen a mile away. Um, So I don't really consider that very, you know, eh. But the characters, I imagine we'll talk about them in more detail. Because when it comes down to it, that's what I feel like most people, you know, they're going to they're gonna like the characters. Because the characters drive this game. The story is a very intentionally tropey vehicle that's only purpose is to be driven by the characters. Yep, so... You want to get into story? I think we've talked about just about everything for gameplay. Now, obviously, there are other systems at play, but they're minor enough that I don't like talking about them yeah. in an overarching thing because they don't mean anything to you unless you're already playing. Yeah, there. guess what? There's a way to uh, duplicate ingredients at the expense of time. I was going to say, there's a way to hire like the bounty board from Baptiste and you know the Heroes Guild, and they'll go and get other adventures, and you don't have to give them potions, but you do have to pay a very large sum of money, and then they'll come back with rare ingredients, and apparently it'll destroy the environment in a certain way, and I have no idea what that means. Yeah, there's random treasure chests that you can buy. We'll, we'll touch on these a little bit more when we talk about the characters that you purchase these services from, but for the most part... Who cares? We're not going to go that that in-depth. You will care if you play this game, and you will understand it, because like all the other systems we've covered so far, they're very simple. The only complexity is from the way that they all interact. Yeah, and all of these systems, you will come to associate with the specific characters who offer these systems. Exactly. Like, you, you won't think, oh, I need to go to the ingredient, you know, you go to Quinn. It's not like faceless uh, merchants like in other games. Right. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about the characters and the story because they're kind of one and the same. This is your spoiler warning, but like Austin said, I think you're still safe to continue. We're not necessarily going to spoil every character's character arc because I think I only saw one through to completion myself. So Yeah, and unlike, uh, unlike with Custom Robo, where you know we gave a very definitive spoiler warning, because I think that in Custom Robo, you really need to experience that story. It, it doesn't hit as good if you know, you're just listening on podcast. This one, I 100% stand by, you're fine, because if you've ever read a story in your life, it doesn't matter if it's like a story for you know kids. If you've read a book, you know the plot twist that's mm-hmm. coming. It's very tropey. Intentionally so, but okay. So... The game starts off with an intro and um, leads into a tutorial, basically, greetings from Rafta. Rafta is this island, which at some point in time, this witch queen named Maven went there and made it her home. She had this big evil castle or whatever, and it was 
at this point, mostly uninhabited. Am I right about that? I think that's what we're led to. Like, you know, maybe a few things, but mostly uninhabited. You are Sylvia, and your uncle Oswald went out there, built a potion shop, and then got himself killed. <laughs> he sends you, you receive a letter stating that you've inherited the potion shop. So, guess what? That <laughs> trope city, <laughs> right from the get go. Right. That's exactly how Reseteer did it too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So you know you have it, it's very Harvest Moon too. Same thing happens in Harvest Moon, uh, or in the one I remember playing is your granddad died. Here's his farm. Uh, start Stardew Valley. Same thing. This is like starting off a Dungeons and Dragons campaign in the tavern. Yeah. So it's you know, and that's what they were probably going for. They weren't setting out to reinvent the wheel. They were just you know. So here's our take on this classic formula. Yeah, your uncle's dead, you get there, you find a potion shop that's in disrepair, and, like, the very first thing you see is this businesswoman come in, and she's like, all right, this is now yours, and Sylvia's like, oh, it's gonna be a fixer-upper, and she's like, yep, and uh, here's his million gold debt. Yeah, she has this briefcase, which had teeth, I thought that was pretty funny. Her name, is it Helene, or is it Helena? It's Helene, I think. Okay. No one knows because there are no voices in this game. She's Helene for this podcast. Okay, she'll be Helene. So she's she's a she's a pretty minor character. She does get some like personification here and then more towards the end of the game, but her main function is coming to take away the winnings that you receive from the contests that we mentioned to pay down this million gold debt that Austin just told you about. Now it's really lucky, I would say, that you have to payment in, in or you have to pay the debt in installments that just happens to exactly coincide with the debt payments. Like you know, you have to pay it or the, with the contest winnings. I sort of interpreted it as the Helene woman who represents the bank, sort of. So the the contract was signed with your uncle Oswald and he's the one who incurred this massive debt and she's transferring it to you. I sort of saw her, saw it as her, you know, doing a little bit of pencil work and just shaping it to fit the, I, that's probably the way because she saw if Sylvia can win this competition, you know, she gets the debt paid and that's all she cares about. She does not care about the success of your shop. Uh, only to the extent that you pay her the debt. That's right. So with that, you have a potion shop and you have debt. I'm not going to go into the entirety of the tutorial because we kind of touched on that in gameplay and that it's going to give you your introductions into the various mechanics. And it kind of opens them up to you slowly. Like, they never drop like 10 mechanics on you at once. Yeah, it very much introduces them to you like piece by piece, which is good in some ways. In other ways, because the game ends after 50 days, it's like, why Why are you giving me this thing that I'm only going to get to use for 10 days? Like, sure would have been nice to have that, you know, 30 days ago. Yeah, it, and, you know, those are complaints that you won't even think about until the game is over. Yeah, if you don't know that going in, you're going to, you're going to be blindsided. Yeah, and it will, you know, it'll it'll mess you up. So, Sylvia owns the shop. Helene came to take that. Next character you're introduced to is Owl. Owl falls out of the rafters in 
the Rafta potion shop. Is that? That's not on purpose. Rafters, Rafta. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I was just just reading my notes. and I was like, hold on. Rafta, Rafters, what? He's the tutorial giver slash he trains you in some ways. He's a little, uh, little owl in a wizard hat to think of what he's like. If you've ever seen Disney's Sword in the Stone cartoon, the animated movie, um, he's pretty much just Merlin and Archimedes combined into one character. Yep. So he's going to teach you how to run a potion shop. He's, you know, it doesn't go into, he's a talking owl and stuff. And Wow, he sure does seem a lo- to know a lot about running a potion shop for an owl. We'll, we'll come back to him. <laughs> so at that point, each of the systems is kind of opened up to you. As we talked about, the entire thing is you're trying to get better ingredients to sell better potions, to purchase better equipment so that you can get better ingredients for better potions, and you're working up in 10-day increments up a stepping ladder of difficulty uh, in competitions. So... Story-wise, there's not all that much to talk about. I think what we should just talk about is we'll go through each of the characters, explain their function, and a little bit about their character. If we want, if either of us use some of their cards, we'll tell a little bit what their cards were. Um, and then we'll talk about the competition characters. But overall, the game is more of a sandbox, but not an endless sandbox. Again, that's a major pain point for, for me, and I guess for you too, Austin. I will say... Um, the characters, we're going to talk about them all at one time, but they are, like we just said, sort of introduced bit by bit, uh, piece by piece. And we'll mention for certain characters exactly when they were introduced, but for some of these, I don't even have it written down when they come in. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through them. So we, They kind of come in through waves. Yeah, a lot of it is focused around the start of a week. So day one, you know, the day starts off, you will typically meet your opponent who may or may not become a character that you interact with farther down the line. And then they'll say, hey, there's a new shop in town or someone will come into your shop and introduce themselves saying, hey, I'm such and such. I've just opened a new shop, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So going down the list, I believe one of the first characters you meet is Quinn. Yeah. Tell me about Quinn. Uh, Quinn is your potion ingredient seller. And Quinn is a little weirdo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ugh. Quinn, like, throws nasty things at people while flo- uh, floating on a broom. Quinn eats bugs. Quinn Quinn just does a lot of stuff, like a bunch of pranks and that kind of stuff. And it, Incredibly cynical, misanthropic, and clinically depressed, I think, <laughs> based, on, uh, based on the way they talk. Yeah, now, uh, when I say Quinn is a little weirdo, I don't necessarily even mean that in, like, you know, a derogatory way. Quinn's just weird, and that's the point of the character. I don't think they were going for anything other than Quinn being weird. The character is written to be completely quirky and unpredictable. That's, like, the point of this character. It's also worth mentioning that when we say they, Quinn is non-binary. This is an inclusive game, so they have some representation here for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, they also have representation for uh, animal people, which we'll get to later, etc., etc. I was going to say, talking about the LGBT 
uh, representation. The main character is canonically bisexual because you can romance uh, anyone, though. I just sort of, in my head, I was like, okay, this is a, an island where everyone is pansexual, is basically what I, what I have. I, I, I don't really know that it really uh, gives us anything to not believe that. Yeah, everyone here is fucking everyone, okay? Well, is okay with doing it, because I don't think we actually know of <laughs> no. any. No, I, I don't think uh, polygamy is represented. I think it's worth saying... Uh, it's not possible it's not. to romance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this isn't yeah. this isn't Skyrim where you can be the head of every guild and et cetera, et cetera. It's it it does seem to be a monogamist culture, though it is a pansexual culture. So as you rank up with these characters, you know you they all have a certain purpose. Quinn is your ingredient seller. You can que- or feed Quinn. Uh, ingredients you get from either the Adventurer's Guild, the Hero's Guild, or, you know, other means. Maybe you bought it out of a loot box. Um, once Quinn has been fed the ingredient, it will always be available in Quinn's shop. Not necessarily an infinite amount. The higher tier ingredients, Quinn will only have, like, two or three of at a time. And every character, as you raise your relationship with them, uh, has bonuses that you get. Now, it is important to mention that the dating sim, air quotes, elements in this are very, very minor in the way that you'll get a few conversation options, and I would say it's painfully obvious which one's the flirty dialogue. Yeah, and that's always the one you want to choose, even if you're not trying to romance them. Like, the game will, if you're entering into a romance with someone, the game will give you a warning and say, you're about to enter a romantic relationship with insert character name here are you sure you wish to proceed if unless you are like at that screen hit the flirt option always flirt because it's always going to increase the relationship the most and thus unlock the cards faster and unlock the discounts in their shop faster yes and those discounts add up i would say especially quins because uh you know you're going to be buying a lot of ingredients for sure you can raise these relationships by spending time with them, which uh, that's for everyone. That's uh, not just talking about Quinn. And, but I don't like spending time with the characters because of how valuable a resource time is. So I found gift giving to be a bit better. And every character has a certain gift that they prefer over others. Like the druid girl, she likes plants. Quinn likes slime because, of course, Quinn likes slime. Because <laughs> they're a weirdo, like the the type of humor that the developers are trying to give you with Quinn definitely seems to be the randomness of their actions. Sometimes Quinn doesn't necessarily think that it's funny, but the way that it's presented to you is like, wow, that was so random. Ha ha ha. Yeah, uh, I actually took a few screenshots of some things that Quinn says, and Quinn says this with a straight face, but your character always looks just dumbfounded. Like, whenever uh, you first open your shop, Quinn's one of the first people uh, who visits and says, hey, what's the big idea? You can't set up shop here. Are you invoking squatter's rights? Because I've got dibs. And then Quinn gets mad and says, you didn't clean up that weird-looking mildew in the corner, did you? I was saving that for later. And it's like, what? Yeah, they definitely, a lot of these scenes with your characters interacting with all the other characters, they try to end them on a punchline. Which I think about 50% of the time were cringe, and the other 50% of the time I was like half-hearted chuckle, you know? 
the way you interact with Quinn is, as we mentioned, the ingredients. One thing I will say that I really like about Quinn's design, I love the floating shop on the broomstick because it's like a it's a broomstick with a chest of drawers on the bottom of it and then it's got just ingredients hanging all off it it feels very like you know studio ghibli as you said Uh, i I like the look of that quinn references it multiple times and says don't fall off you know long way down yeah so next up i believe the next person you meet is mint and if you want to take this one away since i did quinn mint is the typical like tomboy hero her character arc is zero to hero. You know, she starts off as a wannabe and wants to find a legendary weapon. As you progress, I did not complete her character arc, but I suspect that it ends with her finding the legendary weapon that she's looking for. Uh, I don't know. Couldn't couldn't really tell you. I did like her. She's really like peppy and optimistic. You know, really like go get them kind of thing. She. Her cards that she has are, uh, a lot of them seem to be based around granting yourself shield. Yeah, shield and removing debuffs from yourself. Which sort of is consistent with her character that is, you know, I get knocked down, but I get up again. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Yeah, Juan's going to make that that reference work for me. He's going to try. Oh, brother, this guy stinks! She's one of the uh, more understandable characters. You know, you see our Mint, you know what she's about. Uh, But Mint, I like her. She's a good character, I think. Um, She's definitely one of the more simple and basic ones, though. Yeah, but I I wouldn't say simple in a bad way at all. Next up would be Baptiste, who I find very funny. He's the uh, leader of the Heroes Guild. Rich, charismatic dude. Vain. Yeah, yeah, vain, uh, but generally nice to other people. He's just vain about himself. Yeah, he's always messing with his hair. Yeah, and uh, he's kind of like a drama queen with some of his stuff. Like, uh, you know, he'll do like the most, he will do some of the most exasperated like motions, you know. He definitely looks like he's putting on a play or something all the time. Exactly, that's exactly what it looks like. Because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do on a play. You overact. To make it more visible to people, kind of. So people in the back can see. Yeah. So his cards end up giving you, uh, they increase patience, basically. They'll do interest, but the major thing is that his cards, I would say, buy you time. He does have one god card that's, like, if you're doing the competition, like, potion shootout thing, you, you must run this card, or you're doing yourself a disservice. Compromise, yeah. So what Compromise does is it raises interest in the potion to the next level, but it blocks the highest available level of interest. This sucks for haggling because you want to try to get the max interest for haggling. But at competitions, you will never need to hit that last one. So it's just good there. Yeah, quite often, if you're making your potions the way you're supposed to, if you have this card, it's a turn one win if it's in your hand, you know. Or if you have the draw through cards and you get this card out, it's pretty much a turn one win with this. Yeah. So his the way you interact with him is you can hire like the various adventure or heroes guild people to go to certain locales. And what it'll do, it'll be like, okay, here's the ingredient we expect to get. How much would you like to invest in this expedition? And then you put money in that. You come back to him the next day because it'll take a full day. 
and he gives you, you know, ingredients based on how much you invested. So this is like, you know, I don't want to deal with actually putting or putting the thought into brewing the potions and adventures, you know, and that kind of stuff. I was doing this alongside it. So, you know, I would, you know, kit out mint, send her to where I need specifics from, and then I would have a bunch of leftover money because I was making some good potions. So I would just come here and, you know, fund a expedition. And then it would just bring back extra ingredients. And then you bring those to Quinn, and Quinn gets those as a permanent supply. And you can get some rare ingredients from that. If you're having trouble getting a certain rare ingredient that you need for, say, a cauldron upgrade or a shelf upgrade, there's a chance that Baptiste will offer that ingredient in an expedition, and you are guaranteed to get that, albeit at a heavy cost in gold, but you only need one, and you're, you know, then you take it to coin and you just get as much as you want. Yeah, so... It's definitely worth checking in with Baptiste at least once a day just to see what uh, the expeditions give. Because, you know, there were sometimes I didn't fund every expedition I saw. I, you know, if they had ingredients I didn't have, I'd probably do it. But a lot of times it was ingredients I did have. And I was like, eh, I don't really care enough to throw some money at that. I was pretty much doing four of every one a day because if you do four, you have a 100% chance of getting an additional rarer ingredient. It's a. It's one of the best ways to get ingredients as long as you have the money, because doing four every day gets expensive. But it, it does. You got to spend money to get or to make money. So you know those ingredients are going to make more valuable potions. Like at the start, you'll be selling potions for what's like some of the starting prices. It's like hundred gold here, hundred gold, gold yeah, yeah. And what's the highest cost potion that you remember selling? Like four k gold. Yeah. I, I got like a four or 4,100 and you know, that that's a big moment whenever you get it that. is um, another thing about Baptiste that I think is worth mentioning. I did do a, a good bit of his character arc. It's kind of funny. Cause I think it's like, he's getting in touch with the proletariat or something. I don't know if this was some very soft touch attempt at social commentary by voracious games or what, but I thought that was really kind of funny. I didn't see that. Cause I didn't really didn't? go to, no, what, what what happens? He's like, he's talking to Sylvia like, oh, but you were a commoner. I have never tried such common... Common magics. Yeah, something like that. He goes out to kill a slime himself, and he's like, oh, I never knew it was like this. He's so proud of himself because he killed one slime. He's like, he had no idea. It's like, you know, some nobleman who just, I don't know, carried out his own trash for the first time or something. So proud of himself and self-congratulatory. Which goes along with him being vain, you know? I think he's one of the more funny and charming characters in the game. I found him extremely annoying at first, but like, yeah. if you just sort of go with the character and take him for what he is, I, you, it's funny. That's what, that's what I get, is that he's supposed to be annoying at the start, but then, you know, you see him as you do more, and he was one of the ones who, by the end, I liked the most. Yeah, he was funny. Those are the first three that you meet. Quinn, Mint, and Baptiste. The next will become available a bit later on um because i don't think you unlock the people to help your progression really of your store until week two but the week one competition is against a woman called our named roxanne uh which you know a lot more about than i do yeah so i guess this is a minor spoiler roxanne is one of the like austin said she's the first competition contestant against you once you defeat her, she becomes uh, another character who you can interact with 
in town. Uh, <laughs> uh, she has a small secret, though, which is that she is a demon in disguise. She is wearing some extremely skimpy clothing, and when you beat her, I don't know if it's, I guess it's in the first, um, like, round of... Yeah, the first round she loses. Her, like, she turns purple, and her, uh, her tail comes out, and it turns out she's essentially just a con man, or con woman. (laughs) Uh, and these potions she's selling, she's, like, enchanting people to make them believe they're potions, but they're just, like, dishwater or something. Yeah, so your first competition is against not even a real potion seller. It's just someone literally selling snake oil. Uh, she was actually the one who I romanced, which was totally because I liked her cards and not because she was a big titty goth succubus GF. Absolutely, that wasn't influenced at all, right? I didn't even, I mean, I'll be honest, dude, I was playing on that little Steam Deck screen, I could barely tell what I was looking at, so. Well, I was going to say, I figured that uh, with her design, she probably, or the uh, big tits probably take up a 50% of your uh, Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of impossible to to ignore that she is trying to distract <laughs> with her physical appearance. Which, and she, you know, once again, talking about designs informing, that really makes sense for her play style. Yeah, it does. Like, she, she by, by crook, <laughs> more than by hook, she... She gets the uh, she gets the sale, and so uh, I did. I liked her cards though a lot, um, it, mainly because it, I inter- like I said I interacted with the stress mechanic at a yeah. minimum by basically ramping up the interest early and then ending the um, the haggling turn one. So her, <clears throat> but her character arc is actually kind of interesting. I I didn't like it that much. But um, I suffered through it to get her cards after the first, you know, little bit. Basically, she's going legit and Sylvia is helping her study to get her business license. And the big like her character building moment is that she has blackmail for the test proctor for the business license and chooses not to use it and instead passes the test on her own. So that's her little moment of redemption, and then she kisses you, and that's it. But the most important thing is after that that kiss, she gives you mass misdirection. Yeah. What does mass misdirection do, Austin? You've got it pulled up. Uh, raises interest by 18, applies mass misdirection, uh, close sale, mass uh, misdirection, masks all potion debuffs and bad traits, all of them. Like I said, I... After I had that card, I was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to look at those little icons anymore for the uh, buffs and debuffs on the traits. Really quick, I will say, you've been talking about the character arcs for characters. I didn't bring that up. I didn't tell you uh, Quinn's character arc because, spoiler alert, I romanced Quinn because Quinn is a little weirdo and I wanted to see what would happen. Okay. And uh, Quinn's character arc is Quinn stays weird but gets less socially awkward. Coming out of their shell. Yeah, it's more just a coming out of the shell, which, you know, I feel like a lot of people might like. Cause, uh, but Quinn's personality does not change. Queen's, or Quinn is still a little bit mean-spirited, very sarcastic, and if you, if you romanced Quinn because they are a little weirdo, you are going to be happy because they stay a little weirdo. Roxanne is, like, really seductive, and I won't say that she looks down on you necessarily, but... She kind of talks down to you. Like, she's obviously very full of herself 
And you know, when she when she aces this test, she's like, "Of course I was able to do it, even though it's a front." <laughs> but that's what she is, confidence woman. Yep. So fronting is what she does. After you defeat her, you unlock the next two of like the shops. If I remember correctly, that's when it happens. And these are we'll start with the blacksmith. The blacksmith upgrades cauldrons, shelves, showcases, and aging barrels. And uh, you took Roxanne, so I'll take this. The blacksmith's name is Muktuk, and he is a walrus man. And he is pretty, like, he is exactly what you think he's going to be. You know, he's a very large, rotund, jovial man. I feel like I've seen him in every cartoon and thing, you know? I really liked Muktuk being in this game because I felt that they were representing people with my body type. Yeah, there you go. He is literally a walrus, by the way. He, like, he calls himself a walrus. Yeah, it's, uh, he walks around, no shirt, he's got, like, some Pacific Islander tattoos, kind of. He got his moobs out, literally, all the time. Yeah, and he's really just a jovial guy, and he's supposed to be, you know, very happy and nice, loves to eat, uh, and then a good blacksmith. His cards are all, um, if I remember correctly, they're all buffing cards. I didn't do too much of his stuff, but most of them, like, reinforce you, they buff you... You know, they increase the price just base. Um, so all pretty good, but I don't think any really stand out. I did do a little of his uh, progression, and his thing is he's desiring to create a great work. Apparently, walruses are obsessed with art, practice ancestor worship. They're like this meticulous perfectionist culture, kind of like the Japanese Zen, Zen garden vibes. One of the... <laughs> One of the bonding moments you guys have is you go out for ice cream and walruses serve only perfectly spherical scoops of ice cream. So that's as far as I got with him. I, I thought that was interesting and uh, also consistent. He's a perfectionist in his craft. He's another one of those ones that I found pretty charming. He's, a, he's just like a generally nice guy. I wouldn't romance him, but no. I thought he was cool. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't romance Muck Tuck, but I'd go out for a drink with him. Yeah, same. It's got to be a perfect brew, though. Perfectly aged in one of his barrels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a five-star masterwork, dragon-aged. Yeah. So, the next character is Saffron, and I'll let you take her away since I did Muck Tuck. Well, we kind of took turns yeah. on Muck Tuck. Uh, she's a hippie deer woman with antlers and hooves. And she is your carpenter. She is connected with nature. So what she's going to do, she's going to upgrade your shop, giving you more room for cauldron, shelves, barrels. Uh, but what you're probably going to be using her the most for is she sells kindling. Yeah, fuel for the cauldron fires. And typically what happens is when you progress to another week, she sells the fuel that you could have found in the zones from the previous tier and then as you progress more of that fuel becomes available per day there's like a limit like oh i can buy two of these really good prismatic wood logs a day and then the next 10 days is like oh now i can buy five of those you know that kind of thing i thought she yeah. was i thought she was cool i mean i i didn't I love her. her i didn't love her but i liked her I feel like if you look at this game from like a, imagine you were playing a tabletop. I think that if you were playing a tabletop and she was one of the NPCs the GM would introduce, you would have a lot of people who are like, oh, I like her. You know, and they, they want to go back mm -hmm. and visit her and get new equipment, like druidic equipment, that kind of stuff. She's cool. No, no, no real complaints. Her, uh, all her cards are about stress management, if I remember correctly. Yep. Removing stress or, or I think there's one that like 
decreases stress gain by some percentage or whatever. Yeah, and this is really ties into her character because she's always smoking on a pipe. I don't know what's uh, in that pipe, but helps her with her stress. I wonder what it could be. If only there was some plant that might be out there. She, she totally is growing weed in her place. She's smoking weed! Yeah! Dear dear hippie woman, smoking weed. Definitely. With her I, I wooden arm. Cool. Her wooden arm's cool, to be honest. I liked it. Yeah, that's a cool I, design I, thing. I, I like the kind of Magitek arm things, and I love like, the druidic mm-hmm. version of it, you know, because it seems to have full range of motion. So Next up, I believe, is you get Zidriel. Uh, she was my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite characters. I think she was my favorite. Her her soundtrack theme actually definitely was my favorite song in the game. Um, if you think of her, she's like a she's a musician. She's got blue hair. She lives in a coffin road case. Uh, she plays bass guitar. Uh, basically, she's a VTuber. She is. Um, and her whole thing is, you know, she's only just been a. Uh a musician and she's trying to branch out and be an adventurer now too and i think uh would you agree that a big portion of her character is in person she's not quite the same as the artist who performs on stage they're like diff- very different people yeah i think so i think her character arc is that she's well as it's introduced i didn't go too far with her but she's tired of portraying this persona and she just kind of wants to do what she wants yeah, and what she wants to do is to be an adventurer for you that you can send out. And she's the first upgraded adventurer that you get. You have Mint, and she's kind of a lower-tier adventurer. Uh, Zidriel can take more potions and has increased stats, but also costs more gold to send out on a given adventure. However, you can send both of them out at the same time, so you are more than doubling your capability to harvest resources once you get Zidriel. 100%, yeah, um, and that's what I would like, you know, if you're maximizing your time, you're going to send all of them out at once, different locations and stuff. Exactly, yep. Get as many things as you can, feed them all to Quinn, and then bam, you just have those ingredients. Um, she's pretty cool. I like her. Um, her uh, cards are all about keeping the customer entertained, because she's an entertainer. Yeah, I don't think I use any of her cards at all. I think I, uh, I use Jingle which is her starting one, which is the next card played costs two patients less. I found that pretty helpful in in the early game. Yeah, it costs one to play that. So it's like it's a net gain of one patience, which, I mean, that's okay, but I kind of felt like it was junking up my deck, so I didn't didn't even put that in there. That's why I said early, before you have other ways. Because, you know, that is her starting one. But, like, some of the later stuff she can get looking at her list is that but better like improv draws three cards that cost either zero or one patience it's guaranteed to cost those oh really yeah so that so so if you have expensive cards like if i draw a three cost card it won't pull it out exactly so you know you have your deck and maybe you maybe you only have zero or one patience cost cards uh you know, you play improv, you will draw them. It will avoid your high-tier ones, which there's definitely a lot of build potential with that one. My high-cost cards were the ones I was wanting to play. They're like Scheme, which is three, and then all those big, hefty in- interest or buffing cards. Those are like two or three, so I think that's why... I, I think I looked at that one, but I didn't end up taking it. Yeah, so the way you interact with her is the same as Mint. She's another adventure you can send out. And now, if we're following the same, you know, like, roadmap, we would be getting to the uh, second competitor, who is uh, Corsac, who is a 
I guess I would call them kind of a ranger. That's what I have, yep. He's a ranger. And he's like a big environmentalist. Um, not in the same way as Saffron, because Saffron's just, you know, a hippie living in the woods, smoking weed and doing uh, whittling. Corsac uh, <laughs> is like, he's really specific, or like, you know, he wants to take care of the environment. You know, you have to ethically source all the ingredients. So that's his whole thing. And then once you defeat him in the competition, he becomes your third and final adventurer. Yeah, he's the strongest one out of the box, too. Yeah, he's great. He's real good. But he also costs the most. Yep. Which, thankfully, none of them cost all that much, so. No, you're always going to be a net gain value by sending them out. His cards are weird. Yeah, they have these weird, like, style changes. I didn't use them at all. I didn't even I didn't even increase my um relationship with him. So I used the starting card in my uh you know interest deck because the starting mm-hmm. card is raises interest by two whenever a card is played. And I found that pretty useful because you know I was playing you know a bunch of little interest cards and it, it helped. Um otherwise like he, his cards are very uh it, I'm trying to think flexible. Yeah, flexible, because, you know, he's got these different stances. They're called stance cards that do different things. Um, right. So some some of them will reduce stress. Some of them will increase shield gain. And I think that's part of, like, his uh, nature is, you know, he's a ranger attuned with nature, so he wants to be uh, flexible like nature. He does have one other function that's worth mentioning, and that's that he sells, quote-unquote, slime pots. It looks like a flower pot, but it has a slime there. This is the way that you duplicate ingredients. Uh, basically, you can buy one for every Magiman color, and you get bonuses for putting in ingredients that have high Magiman counts for whatever color it matches. And then, yeah, that's all. It they're 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 good. You can duplicate items uh, or ingredients with it, which I did that a few times. Where before I would feed Quinn one of my only ones, I would go duplicate it first. You know, mm-hmm. I did that too. But yeah, Corsac, not much to talk about him. Uh, inoffensive, fulfills his stereotype pretty well. I think he's probably my least favorite character, honestly. Because there's the least there. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I, I wouldn't say I disliked him. Or He's just, it just feels like there's not enough there. He's very... I agree. I didn't dislike him, I just liked him the least. Yeah, because all the other characters have some amount of personality that makes them more charming. He honestly is the only one that feels like he could be from a different game. Because, you know, he's like, he's the, he's the straight man of the game in a way until he starts making squirrel poses. <laughs> so weird. Uh, yeah, he could yeah. be from any game until he starts doing that. After him, I believe you get Salt and Pepper, which have the best <laughs> theme in the game. They're pirates. Um, and cat pirates. They, yeah, they're cat pirates. And they have treasure chests. And what are treasure chests, Garrett? It's just a random loot box, basically. Uh, every every ten days when you go to the next like tier of competition, they will increase in value and give you a random assortment of ingredients from various rarities from the current zones that are, like, the most recent zones that have unlocked for adventuring. It's kind of like what Baptiste does, except it's completely random. It just gives you another crack at getting a rare ingredient that you might need for upgrades or whatever. And I bought these literally every day. They're, you can get some good value out of them. You can. It's in your best interest to buy these. And you also get to hear the music. 
Yeah, there are three different boxes. They sell uh, a low, medium, and high cost one that have low, medium, and high amounts of loot. I bought the the high tier one literally every day that it was available. And that will, you know, that'll help you spiral upwards in terms of money. Exactly, yep. Now, all their cards are interesting because they're two characters, but they're treated as one for gameplay purposes. So the cool thing is, is all their cards, or most of their cards at least, they have two functions. They have a defensive and an offensive function, basically. So, uh... For example, their first one is strike or strike later, and you get to choose. Do you raise interest by 11, or do you gain 5 shield? And then each of them, I believe, is supposed to be representative of one of the characters. Uh, So, like, maybe Salt's really aggressive while Pepper's more defensive. And then, you know, all of the different cards are, like, choose uh, one or the other, which gives them a lot of uh, flexibility and usage. Yeah, I don't think I ever really used them. I felt like... Maybe that flexibility would be good, but at the same time, I felt like I was overpaying because you get you get one effect, and it I, it's costing me three mana to either gain five shield or eleven, uh, de- or deal eleven uh interest. Yeah, and I didn't think either of those was worth three mana on its own, and so I. <sighs> I don't know. I just didn't take him for that reason. It was very... No, I agree. Very patience uh, ineffective. I I may have called it mana. Yeah, but what I... The way I looked at them is their cards are more useful before you have a cohesive deck. That's true. Like, you know, you could have a deck that's mostly their cards if you don't have anything cohesive like what we had at the end, and that would probably serve you well because it's, you know, they're flexible, but once... They're just a stepping stone, in my opinion, to get to a very specialized deck, which is in the nature of these games. Because, you know, you want to end up in, like, Slay the Spire to have a specialized deck. Yeah, a lot of synergy. And I did not feel like there were nearly as many options for synergies in this game. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's just not by the nature, because everyone gives, like, what, like, a few cards, and then... Eight, eight, ten cards, maybe? Yeah, and there's not terribly many. The only thing I guess I would say is that slay the spire as a deck builder you know you're kind of dependent on what you get through that run whereas this you can change your deck in between each thing also in slay the spire the deck building is the game whereas this it's like a part of the game so i i mean there's no denying that it is somewhat undercooked but at least there's an excuse yeah it's one of the minor things it's also worth mentioning on these cats that these are one of, if not the only character that is non-romanceable. So you can fuck one walrus, but you can't fuck two cats. I think there, are, that goes back into the monogamy thing. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure they uh, are together. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the thing is, like, if you do go the full romance route with them, instead of romancing, you'll become blood brothers with them, which is cool. So you become part of their pirate crew. Yeah, you become part of their crew. All right. Next up, I believe, is Luna. Garrett, I'm going to have to let you handle Luna because I didn't interact with Luna at all. She was pretty cringe. Uh, Yeah. So she's a marketing expert, which is... I actually thought this was pretty funny. Like, her character, realizing what her character was, was a slow burn for me. Because she looks like... I, I thought maybe she was wearing... Have you seen those... It's like a hoodie or something, but the hood has little, like, polar bear arms... So you, yes, like, pull the yeah. hood up, and it looks like you have a polar bear on your head with yeah. the arms dangling down you. I thought that's what it was. 
But no, she has four furry arms, two sets of arms that are furry, and she has these, like, glasses that have octagonal rims, and she has antenna, which kind of look like bunny ears. So I was looking at this character, trying to figure out what kind of mammal she's supposed to be, and then I saw that she has this, like, green cloak, and then I looked at her name, and I was like, oh my god, her name is Luna, she's a Lunamoth. What am I thinking? It it took me so long to realize what was going on with her. But yeah, she's a marketing expert. She's good at multitasking because she has an extra set of arms. She always has her phone in two of them. Yeah, she's got a she's got a smartphone. She has a little iPhone which hilariously and quite fittingly the screen on it is cracked. Wait, it's it I never saw. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah the screen's cracked. Yeah, when you go to like uh, purchase her marketing plans, like, it's her cell phone. You know, she holds her, her smartphone up, and that's the menu, and there's, like, a big crack on it. That's a great visual design. I love that. Yeah, that was really funny. Actually, dude, Luna is OP. <laughs> I'm sorry that you didn't interact with her, but, dude, if you, like, if you want to save scum or whatever, like, you can see what's coming up tomorrow. I don't know if it's randomly generated, but, like, let's say today... She has a plan to increase the value of fire tonics for tomorrow. And you either go to tomorrow. I, I'm not sure if it's random or not because I didn't save scum. I, did, I didn't do this, but you could in theory. Go to tomorrow. And if it is not random, you see, okay, tomorrow there's the thing that's a random event that's going to increase the value of fire tonics. Now I know I can reload my old save. And purchase the fire tonics buff. So now I have two stacking buffs to increase the value for fire tonics. So before I go to bed tonight, I'm going to load up all of my cauldrons, make a bunch of fire tonics, and like scoop up, you know, 50,000 gold tomorrow. Or if it is randomly generated, you just make that save and reload until you get the stacking bonuses. But like I actually hit it right by chance a couple times where she had something that was increasing the value of a specific tonic, and then there was another thing that came the next day that increased the value for all tonics, and I was able to just crank out, like, 30 tonics and, you know, get a giant, like, 80,000 gold. And so now I, you know, I was at, like, day 41, and I had my potion shop fully upgraded because I had all this money. Kind of sad I didn't interact with her, but because it sounds like she is very useful. She's honestly, like, it's hard to predict, but I think this is part of your snowball upward if you're interacting with her. But it kind of does, like, just help you finish the game quicker, which, I mean, personally, I I got to day 45, and I I made my final potions and slept the last five days. You you uh you had won at that point. You probably would have finished it if I hadn't told you that it just ends. Yeah, yeah. I, it literally made me not play ten percent of the game. God, that puts it into perspective, dude. Five days, ten percent of the game that I skipped on purpose because I knew there was no point at that point. I'd I'd won, you know. Yeah, you had won. What's the point in like going harder when there's nothing, you know? After. Oof, that's a good point. That's a very nihilistic point of view, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's just, I don't think it would be like that in other games, but it's just the fact that this game has all the makings of an endless game, and then it doesn't. You don't. I don't know if they're going to make DLC for it, but they should. 
I mean, it, it came out a long time. Like, all the mechanics, I think we both agree that the mechanics are good, you know? It, yeah. It, it has everything it needs. It just... It's, it's been six months now. Yeah, and I don't think they've said anything. Uh, maybe we'll have the podcast curse, and the second this comes out, they get in, they'll announce it. I want mm-hmm. that to happen. Yeah, do it. Make it happen. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy, if they make a DLC to extend this game, like, past, I'll buy it, and I'll, I'll keep playing it. Yeah, so... We've handled all of the major characters, but there's a few more competition people. So we've had the first two, which were Roxanne and Corsac. Uh, the third one is Boss Finn. You know exactly what type of character he is when he walks in. He is like a shark man in a pinstripe suit. He's constantly doing that thing where he's like stroking his chin, smirking at you with sharp teeth. He's a, he's a loan shark, and he is going to... Whereas the other, uh, Roxanne was a snake oil salesman, he is just a ruthless businessman who will make patents that make it illegal to sell certain things. So that's what how he interferes with you. As far as I know, he does not have a character arc of redemption. He's just, you just kind of beat him and he just leaves to go do his stuff <laughs> yep. elsewhere. You beat him and he goes away. That's all. Yep. And that's the case for uh, the later people. I thought it was going to become a thing where every competition would give me that character, you know, to interact with. Because it happened with Roxanne and Corsac. So I was thinking Boss Finn would end up serving a similar purpose, but then, you know, he just leaves. Yeah, I was kind of glad. I was like, man, I do not want, like, one more thing that I have to do during the day. I, I can understand that. It, it would have been easy if he was, like, just another adventurer. I wouldn't have, you know, minded another adventurer. But after him, the penultimate rival is Anubia who is a centuries-old uh, potion uh, empire. She looks like she's 14, but she's 5,000 years old, I swear. Which, this isn't even a Japanese game. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but they, they definitely play that meme out with her. And I, When I saw that, I was like, oh my god. It, it does feel, though, I will say, like they're less doing it with a straight face and more that they're poking fun at it. So, she's basically Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Yeah, with all of her ancient piles of gold. She um, has these drones to do her delivery and is able to project her consciousness into her drones. And her drones are like mindless versions of herself that are just endlessly delivering potions from warehouses. And it's like, you know, it, she literally is like Amazon. You know that You know that meme people post about how the Amazon delivery man like comes into your house and unwraps your pillow that you just bought and slips it under your head while you're asleep like that's what her drones are doing in this game with potions yeah so the competition here is i guess all of them are kind of following a theme because the first one roxanne she's a snake oil salesman sylvia is fighting to you know prove herself as as the real deal you know and then the second one is kind of business versus a more naturalistic view because you know he's just he doesn't get involved in the actual business side of things. It's just business versus, yeah, you know, the actual procuring of the ingredients. The third one is definitely more of a, a straight edge businessman versus, you know, like a cruel one. And then this one is just small business trying to not get eaten by a uh, big like business. A, yeah, yeah, big a business. megacorp by a megacorp. Yeah, which you know, somebody who's a business owner, that's a that's a legitimate fear. Yeah, I bet that hit home for you, huh? Yeah, so she's got all these drones that make it hard to compete with her. That's supposed to be the point. And then uh, I just crushed her, and she didn't get to a single turn. 
yeah, she didn't get a turn with me either. Neither did Boss Finn or Corsac. So, after her, uh, we kind of need to talk about him. We should have talked about him earlier. But the judge for these competitions... Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to save him for now, too. That's why I didn't interrupt. We'll go ahead and talk about that. Up until this point, the competitions have been judged by an individual named Robin. Now, Robin is, I would say he is your classic high fantasy looking wizard pretty boy kind of thing. Yeah, he's your he is your foil. And up until the very like last point of the game, he is held up as this is the end game. He is everything that you are aspiring to be. And once you finish the game, you and he will be equals. Yeah. So his whole thing is Garrett mentioned at the start that there was an evil uh, witch queen named Maven. He is, like, the only survivor of the war against her. And he was, like, a prodigy who was, like, a kid when he was there and, you know, with everything that happened to Maven. And he was the only one who survived. So he is a a real celebrity around town. He's like a Commander Shepard character, you know? He's the street urchin soul survivor (laughs) who who, uh, walked away with, you know, all of the, the winnings from defeating Maven. So, in terms of visual design, he's got, like, swoopy blonde hair, giant wizard hat, and he's got the most stereotypical, like, wizard's robes. You know, they're the dark blue with the gold accents, but he makes it a little bit more fancy because he's got, like, a suit on underneath it. But, yeah, like, his design, once again, uh, tells you a lot about him. He's supposed to be a big deal. And on his back at all times is his pet lizard named May. M-A-E? Yeah, M-A-E. But... I realized someone we forgot. Who's that? Owl. We didn't go back to Owl. Owl, very obviously, you probably, you don't even need to play the game. You probably got this from just our description. Owl is your uncle Oswald, who got polymorphed into an owl and decided to just kind of, like, he was, he didn't tell anyone because he didn't want to be shackled with the debt as an owl, so he just lets the debt fall to you. Not just polymorphed, but true polymorphed. He, uh, you find out, I believe, on the third week or so that it's him because you, uh, don't have him for a few days because Sylvia gets really mad at him, but for understandable reasons, because at this point, you know, he let her inherit all his debt. He didn't say anything, and now it's quite literally soul-bound debt to her. That's what, uh, Helene's title is, the soul-binding debt collector, and he just let that fall onto Sylvia and didn't say anything. Yeah, so he makes up for it by, like, going and researching law, and he's the one who overturns Boss Finn's um, patents. So he helps you beat Boss Finn, and once Robin comes into the picture, you start looking really suspiciously at that lizard that's on (laughs) Robin's shoulder, because they remind you of Owl. And Owl, Oswald, May, oh, I wonder... Um, so you have another reason, by the way, for trying to complete the last competition besides just the money. You get the, uh, what's it, like a maven flower or something? It's like the only one left in the world or something. Yeah, maven bloom. Yeah, and it can be used to make a potion to, of true polymorph, to give someone back their body. And it's like the only thing. And at this point, it's very clear, I think, to everyone that, uh, May, Robin's pet lizard, is maven. So the final battle is not just about the money to pay off the debt, it's also who gets to be unpolymorphed. Maven or Owl? Oswald, I guess I should say. 
Yep. And you, you, so you don't actually get to make the potion, but it does have its own unique model. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I would, I would have liked like one final potion brewing thing where you make that, you know, like one final day. That'd be nice. Yeah, it would have been cool. But like there is, there's one final haggling, which we'll get to in a second. But basically you have to do like your final showdown with Maven and uh, Robin. And it turns out that Maven has been like mind controlling Robin this whole time. And you've actually been facing off against her. She's the one who's been brewing all his potions or whatever. Did I, did I read that correctly? Uh, 100%. He, that's what she says, is he was just some useless boy. What, you think he could actually survive? No, he just, like, got lucky. He didn't beat me, and then she just took control of him after she got polymorphed. Yeah, he was just a street urchin who was in the wrong place at the right time. Well, it wasn't the right time for him. <laughs> right time for Maven. Wrong place yeah. for him, right time for Maven. So, he, uh, basically... You beat them in the normal competition minigame, and Maven reveals herself, you know, the the Lizard May reveals herself as the uh, Witch Queen Maven in disguise, and you have to convince her to face you down in a, a third round of competition, so she, like, resets the minds of the crowd and the judge. So. Basically, all you have to do is repeat round two of the judgment. Is that how that works? Yeah, it's just you got to re... Uh, so no matter what you're having to do, like, it's best out three out of five, basically. Gotcha. Well, it. I mean, at this point, you should be so far ahead of the power curve that, I mean, like I said, I turn one to them. Uh, you, I, you know, I had five-star masterwork potions that had been aged, so basically, I would apply Charmed, which is an increase by 15%, and it was an instant win. Or I would use that uh, Baptiste card we were talking about. Yeah. Instant turn one win. So I did that on all three rounds. So, I mean, it's a boss fight, but it's not much of one. Yeah, it's not much of one. And you, you, you know what I do wonder? I wonder why she didn't just repeatedly wipe people's memory and just get you stuck in a loop. Could she only do that the once? I don't think you're supposed to think about it that much. Yeah. So once it is defeat or they are defeated, you have paid off the debt and you have not only done that, you also got the uh Maven Bloom and you can brew the potion to get your uncle his body back. But uh instead, you want to talk about what happens, the final haggling? Yeah, so you're about to give this potion to Oswald. And Helene walks in and, like, recognizes that Owl is Oswald, you know, polymorphed. And so what Sylvia decides to do is, so Sylvia pays off the debt, and she says, I can give you this polymorph potion, and in, in exchange, you leave and leave Oswald alone. And Oswald is, you know, like, oh, man, it sucks to, like, have to be an owl for the rest of my life, but better than having to go with her and be, like, a, I don't know, indebted, indentured ser a servant or something. So you go through this haggling minigame of talking Helene into taking the potion instead of Oswald because it's going to be better for her to have this way to, like, you know, <laughs> prevent other people from hiding the way that Oswald has. 
And so she takes the potion, and Oswald is like, well, dang, I guess I'll have to get used to being an owl. And then there's a twist. Another one. Sylvia brewed two potions. Yeah, and Oswald is like, what? No way! She's like, well, it's a tiny potion, but you're also a tiny owl. So Yep. So, at that point, the game ends, and, you know, the credits roll, and you think, alright, now that was our time for the, uh, for the real meat of this game, the endless mode, the free play, the new game plus, and, uh, title? You, uh, yeah, you do get one little picture of uh, Sylvia hanging out with another hairy, bearded, long-haired man that has the same hair color as her, which is like red, like like red, red, like primary color red. And yeah, then, uh, very yeah, red. Title screen. Game ends. How about that? Wasn't that something? It is the biggest negative I can say about this game because I don't. I I'm trying to think of a way to say this. It feels like the game punishing you for wanting to play more. Yeah. It's like I've I did I've all this hard to get all those things. I want to keep playing with those things. Mm-hmm. You drip fed me all of these things. I'm finally feeling myself gaining a mastery of it, and now I don't get to exercise it. And I don't want to restart because I don't want to be drip fed all that again. So that's oh boy. Conclusions, Garrett. Yeah, I get that. I I get that they want you to do multiple playthroughs, but I think that's sort of antithetical to the slow snowballing of complexity that the game has. It is. It's antithetical. I think they don't mix well. This game, whereas a lot of the previous games we talked about would benefit from, you know, a sequel or something, this game just needs a $9 DLC that adds an endless mode. Yeah, I mean, put a few things in there where it's like um, an, an incremental game post-game is what we yeah, need Yeah, kind of like a this. roguelike mode, where it constantly gets, you know, a little bit harder. Slay the Spire has one. Yeah, and there you go. Oh, my lord. Okay. How does, how does this game relate to other games of its genre, Austin? I don't know other games of this genre um, because of the amount that it's like 90 different genres. Because, you know, it's got dating sims, which I can compare it to a thousand of them. It's not as good of a card game as Slay the Spire or Monster Train. I think Monster Train technically counts as a card game. Um, yeah, it does. It does. So it's not, a, it's not as good of a card game as them. Uh, the potion mechanics are unique and interesting. It's not as good as like a business simulator as Reseteer, for example. But it does all of these well. It does all of these little things well enough that makes it stand out in a way of not standing out in any single singular area, I guess is how I would say it. Okay, this is an indie game made by an indie game studio, and I feel like what they did was they drew a big Venn diagram and put their favorite successful indie games in each big outlying circle, and where all of these overlapped, right in the middle, they wrote Potionomics. That's a good way to point it, put it. They took Slay the Spire, they took Stardew Valley, they took Reseteer, they took name your favorite, you know, visual novel, and they made something that would have something for everyone. And even though there is nothing quite like this, this game is like a million other things. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. It ends up feeling derivative and safe. I don't think it's bad. I think it compares okay. It at least stands up, but 
this is not going to be another Slay the Spire or another Dead Cells, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I think there is something to be said for the fact that while none of the systems compare to other in the genre individually, there is a lot to be said about how well they wove a dozen different simple systems together to create a very cohesive game in the gameplay. Yeah, this is arithmetic, not calculus. <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, it that is a benefit. Um, how was the story? Slim but serviceable. They were clearly more concerned with the characters' individual arcs than with any sort of, like, overarching story. And I thought that was fine, especially for the type of game that this is. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was going to be, you know, like, just mostly focused on the characters, and, you know, you get to explore them more in the endless mode, but... Womp, there's no womp. endless mode. There is no so, endless mode in a game no like end- this? Yes. How could they do such a thing? Who's this game for? If you've gotten this far in the episode... I think you, the listener, will know if this game is for you or not. It's got too many gameplay systems at once to be an easy recommend to anyone. Like, let's look back at Ace Combat. We knew exactly who Ace Combat was for, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know who this is for fully, because um, while I personally enjoyed the gameplay, there's so many different layers that you have to interact with that, you know... Like, if somebody really hates deck building, they can't get into this game. If someone really hates math and trying to, uh, you know, brew the perfect potion, they're not going to like this game. It's got a bunch of little things you have to like. I'll tell you what, if you have always wanted to romance a walrus, this is your game. Oh, yeah, I can't think of any other games that do that, Garrett. Mm Mm-mm. No, or or a Luna Moth Girl? This is the first time I've seen that, so, hey, this might be your game, you know? Yep. You can be in lesbians with a Lunamoth girl. An anxiety-ridden Lunamoth. Yeah, there are a couple of characters in this game that represent mental illnesses of some sort or another, and she definitely has crippling anxiety. I feel it, though. She's she's my representation. <laughs> yeah, where we're I'm the glutton walrus. Yeah, per- perfectionist. Just say perfectionist. I'm not a perfectionist, dude. No. <laughs> Have you listened to this podcast? Come That's on. fair. That's very fair. <laughs> What was its significance in the time period it released? Uh, you mean six months ago? Yeah, you know, just a, just a little bit ago. I don't know. I think it's probably going to be a springboard for voracious games. At least that's what I hope. This isn't something that's, you know, jury's still out, I guess. I'm trying to think about what all came out around that time. I know a lot of ports came out around that time. Um, I think Scorn finally came out. Uh, that time. When is the last time a game came out that was actually worth talking about? Was it Elden Ring? Well, this one is more recent than Elden Ring. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, in between Elden Ring and now, like, what are we, one week away from the Legend of Zelda game? I feel like it's going to be Elden Ring, a bunch of garbage, Not you know, excluding the ports. Yeah, it's not for me, but I know a lot of people love God of War Ragnarok. That came out. Did it? Yeah, I haven't heard anything about it. I didn't even know it came out. Yeah, so it uh that's probably a big one for some people, but um yeah, so it, I think it probably did really are looking at the October releases, there's nothing really major on there which probably helped this game a lot. Yeah, I bet I bet it did. Because they did not have the marketing budget of others and this game did remarkably well for the size of the studio. Yeah, I think it did too. What was it like 12 employees that they had? Yeah, something eight? like 12. I think it started at 8 and then they had 12 by the end. Right, something like that. Yeah. 
So, you know, very they managed to accomplish with that. Very admirable. Okay. So are you ready for my simile? Yes. Well, in this case, I guess it's a metaphor. This game is Neapolitan ice cream. That's short, simple, and completely true. Uh, the only thing I would say, it was Neapolitan ice cream if instead it had 30 flavors. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know what Neapolitan ice cream, it's like, uh, it's one bucket of ice cream that you buy that has chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry in there, and like, the left third is vanilla, the center third is strawberry, and the right third is chocolate or something. Yeah, it's like they tried to come to put something in there for everybody. It's a safe, simple combination of the three most common flavors. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I like that. All right, Garrett, what would you rate it out of five? I gave it three Dragon Aged Masterwork Curse Cures out of five. I actually gave it almost the exact same. I gave it three point five. I will put a preface though that if it had an endless mode, I would have gone to four or four point five. It's it really is a huge detriment to the game. Yeah, like I said, I if it, when you told me that this did not have an endless mode, I would I was ready to uninstall it at that point. I would not have finished the game. Yeah, it, it killed it for me that much. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that I didn't get that spoiled for me. All right. Uh, with that, would you recommend it? I can't think of any situation where I would recommend this over. One of the other games in that giant Venn diagram that they took it from, uh, like Slay the Spire, Monster Train, Stardew Valley, Civilization, etc. That said, I wouldn't recommend that you avoid this game. I just, I don't know. This was a very, like, gray bleh at the end of it for me, just because of the the fatal flaw, I guess. Yeah, I had a bit easier of a time because I didn't have to drag as much as he did because you know i was playing on pc uh i don't recommend it for steam deck just flat out Um, no don't don't play it on steam deck and it is very difficult to recommend overall for the sole fact that there's too many different systems and like if i knew or like if i was talking to you listener and you were my friend and you were like i like deck building games i would recommend slay the spire if you were like i like uh management style games i'd recommend reciteer uh, now, if you came to me and you said, I want a deck-building, dating sim, management, uh, simulating, brewing uh, game, I'd be like, well, buddy, I got the exact thing for you. But as it stands, people who want the various different gameplay styles this game offers, they can find it better elsewhere. It's most recommended for people who want to see a ton of different systems interacting. Yeah, I think this was made for uh, getting your... What was it, $30? Yeah, something like that. And and giving you something that you didn't hate. And, you know, it does have a few really uh, enjoyable points. It's $30. Uh, it took me 17 hours to beat on the dot. So, you know, pretty good value for my time. Yeah, I mean, I would buy this. Like, like for twenty nine ninety nine. if I got, like, the, the soundtrack on vinyl, I would drop 30 bucks on that alone. So, there you go. Yeah. Once again... Just want uh, us to say that the soundtrack for this game is incredible. It's really good. It's like a totally different realm. Like the soundtrack for this game is, it's a triple A soundtrack. Definitely. It really is. Whereas no other part of the game really exemplifies that, I would say. No. All right. Well, uh, Garrett, that is my episode. So I got to ask you, what are we playing next time? We're playing Sonic Adventure 1. That is, in fact, what we are playing. Uh, we're going to do DX. 
Uh, yeah, we're gonna do the um, DX with the better SADX mod. It doesn't like change the gameplay or add anything in there really. It is a graphical improvement, and it uh, it's a model replacer. It replaces the PC models with the original Dreamcast models, so it's supposed to be more like stylistically consistent with what was originally released. And Sega Dreamcast is where I originally played this game. So I think this one will be interesting because I have not played DX in a long time. Because uh, I find that out of the adventure games, the one you play the first is probably the one you're going to be more attached to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played Adventure 2 first. So that's that's my game. So I'm excited to go back and revisit DX. Yeah, and I don't think it's really... It's almost like they're completely different games. Because Sonic Adventure 1 actually was like a primordial, prototypical open world. And Sonic Adventure 2 did away with it completely in, in favor of a more traditional, like presentation of a sonic game so this game is it's a weirdo game you know it's it is a weird one in the wide world of sonic games so i'm excited to actually like dig into it and talk about it i'm excited to go fishing yeah big the cat man he's the best character in the whole game best character is he your representation in that game he is yeah nobody in the world hates big the cat i'm telling you he's the best one he is i like his uh cameos in sonic adventure too all right. Uh, one more thing to address. We are very, very sorry about the delay on this episode. Uh, both of us had uh, various life things that came up. Yeah, as it does. You know, we're both working man, so kind of, kind of hard to balance life around this, which is not a source of income or anything. This is something that we both enjoy doing for fun. So, unfortunately. You know, when duty calls, you gotta, we must deal with the uh, must-dos before anything else. Yeah, but hopefully things will get a bit more calm. We can keep these coming consistently. Thankfully, the next game is much shorter game. than. And I do want to say, if you have not already joined us on our Discord, please do. There you can see a schedule for the games that we intend to play in the order that we intend to play them. There were also some tentative dates on there. That's all out of whack now. We are pushing the game after Sonic Adventure DX back because we are adding a new game to the roster. I I think it's okay to talk about that now. I'd say so. Yeah, let's go ahead and announce what we're going to be playing after Sonic Adventure. Uh, So, it's going to be the first new release that we are playing uh, right as it happens because, of course... we don't want to be playing one of these games when Tears of the Kingdom comes out. Yeah, sorry. Whatever game is, is next after Sonic Adventure, um, I'm not playing you. I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom. I am... Or Garrett messaged me like, hey, do you want to uh, you know, push back the thing and get some Tears of the Kingdom in? And I was just like, that would be so helpful because I don't want to have to try to be playing Tears of the Kingdom and that because I will... I love this podcast, but I'll probably choose Tears of the Kingdom. It looks amazing. So after Sonic Adventure DX comes out, uh, hopefully at that point we'll be able to give you more of an idea of how long it's going to be. We typically try to choose shorter games for this podcast simply so that we can beat them in two weeks. But uh, I don't think anyone really knows what the runtime is on Tears of the Kingdom yet. And judging by Breath of the Wild, it is not going to be short. So it could it's be a little be while. It's not either. Um, uh-uh. which I'm also fine, you know, if people want an episode 
with doing it before as long uh, before we finish as long as we are very upfront about this is as far as we have made it because it's an open world it's a true mm-hmm. open world so yeah you know, an in progress episode or we could just do like an episode zero or something and you know just introduce ourselves give a little bit of background to us and the podcast and stuff you know if that's something that the listeners are interested in you guys can hop in the discord and chat us up about that let us know what you think you can hop in the discord and ping me for custom robo land parties I'm, I'm I'm going to get this started. I swear it's going to happen. Yeah, or one v one me in uh, the fossil zone in uh, Lost Kingdoms too. What's up? They're not they're not prepared for that. They're not prepared <laughs> yeah, my, for your your infinite like Rebus. carbuncle infinite Rebus carbuncle combo. All right, but uh, there are any other announcements we need to make? I don't think so. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got this episode made. Uh, we're only. Are we, are we a week or two weeks late? Uh, it depends on how long it takes in editing and takes me to get it uploaded and everything. Editor's note, Austin and Garrett are really f***ing late. Fair. Well, that's all for this week. We'll catch you guys in a couple more weeks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the Discord. Take care.